When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Knife Talk is sponsored by Even Heat, the manufacturers of the finest heat-treating ovens available. Find your next oven at evenheat-kiln.com. To the chopper! All right, welcome to another episode, another fine episode of Knife Talk Single Track. Uh, it's not necessarily a true single track, though, because um, I'm here with a very special guest. I'm usually here with Craig Lockwood of Chop Knives and Jeff Fader of Fader Knives, but today I'm very fortunate to be graced with the presence of my friend Will Manning of Heartwood Forge. How are you doing, Will? I'm doing great. How are you, Mareko? I'm doing all right. Thanks all considering. for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that you were able to come on and and have this conversation with me. All right. So Will is uh he's a young maker. I think what are you in your mid late twenties? Yeah, that's great. That sounds good. Um All actually, right. yeah, mid to late thirties. <laughs> mid to late thirties? Oh uh, man. Mid thirties, yeah. Okay. Well, I guess we're the same age. Never <laughs> mind. I was giving you the benefit of the doubt. Uh it. you just have a, a young look about you, my friend. Um but he is phenomenally talented uh, maker. He's very skilled. He specializes in chef's knives. Um, in the last, I think it's the last year or a couple of years, eh, probably two or three years now, you've really been doing a lot of sand mine work, which is another big reason why I wanted to get you on the show and chat with you. But all in all, you you do a lot of, you do a very good job with the kind of recycled material uh aesthetic and 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 also just i guess the sustainability of using uh you know repurposed materials you make a lot of knives from uh from the old saw blades and stuff like that and so i I, i've always loved that kind of thing about uh knives in general especially well i guess chef's knives And, and you know i've talked about it before on the podcast i love when i go to vintage shops or antique shops the first thing i do is try to find the chef's knives and the thing i love about that is that they have they're they're usually kind of crusty or stained or have a heavy patina on them and the handles are kind of rough but what i love about it is that they already have like this history and this story of their use about them already you can you can actually see it on the blade and that's i feel like that's the same kind of quality you get from a knife that has been forged from an old saw blade and the handle material is pulled out of an old barn or something like that is that i just i think it gives it so much more depth of character 
And, um, but I'll, I'll let you talk about that, you know, kind of, I, I would love to hear, you know, where you got your start. Will's, Will's from East Tennessee, but I think you're originally from Georgia, I believe, right? Yeah, I kind of got my start in Georgia. We lived outside of Athens, but I grew up in North Florida, uh, okay. Tallahassee. Oh, right on. So. Yeah. All right. And I think I'll just let you take it from here. You know, let's hear your story. Where'd you, where'd you, you know? I, I guess you grew up in North Florida, but, uh, you know, how did you first get into knife making? Did it start earlier? Have you always worked with your hands? Let's, you know, tell yeah, me about it. Yeah, so I'll give you a quick and dirty rundown. It started really with, um, my dad was a chair maker, just a hobbyist. And he always had these old tools around and emphasized, you know, how important having sharp tools was for working green wood. Sure. Um, and I never really took to it. I I eventually got a job at a sheet metal shop, and just that was my introduction to to working with steel. Um, when was that? Two thousand and three, I believe. Um, met an artist there that got me into welding and sculpture, and wound up doing a lot with um, FABA, Florida Artist Blacksmith Association. Uh, Steve Schwartzer was on your show. Yeah, I think recently he was one of the founding members of oh, cool. of that group, but they really took me under their wing and um, got me started in blacksmithing. That eventually led me to pursuing art school just because I, I wanted to focus on bringing things into the world um, sure. through my own creation. And that seemed like a, a reasonable decision at the time. And that... <laughs> I guess eventually I wound up at a living history park, oddly, okay. but that was a pretty great way to get paid hourly um, to to practice blacksmithing and get some time at the anvil. So I spent three years doing that before I really jumped out on my own. Okay. Um, and leading up to that jumping off point, I kind of dabbled with, with knives and would bring them over to the girl uh, that I was sort of going after at the time, who's, who is now my wife. Um, it's an interesting way to court a girl. Hey, girl, I got a knife for you. <laughs> hey, girl, you like to cook? I'll try to make a knife for you. Oh, <laughs> uh, she was an awful critic. I mean, oh yeah, strong, you know, strong critic. It was it was good for me. Um, still get lots of criticisms, but yeah, that's the quick and dirty sort of my story right there yeah i love it so it's great that you have somebody who actually does cook in the house that can give you basically instantaneous feedback um on your yeah, work as you especially in your early days when you were first starting out yeah it's excellent to have her around lee i mean she's an incredible person um, also an incredible cook so awesome it, it works out bonus um so did you get started did you start right off with chef's knives or did you start with hunting knives or where did you start knife wise i started with chef's knives the yeah. at the living history park in tallahassee where i was working they had a huge uh pretty powerful sort of food waves program food waves program um so it started actually with making some tools for on-site use and that sort of bled into my personal life. I'd go home and 
plug in my grinder. I didn't have electricity at the park, so I'd go home and use electricity, mm, sure. at, you know, in the backyard or whatever. Um, right. So at the park, were you, you said you didn't have electricity, so does that mean you were, like, draw filing the knives? How did, or how were yeah. you making them there? Yeah, wow. Yeah, draw filing, and, I mean, I'd save certain tasks for bringing home and grinding, and I'd, you know, I'm still learning so much. Back then, I had even more to learn. Um, sure. So I just had this, I forget what it was, some Lowe's or Home Depot grinder that eventually just burned up. Um, <laughs> I would save some stuff for, for bringing home at night. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we we had this old historic forge and made our own charcoal and right. the whole nine yards. And it was, you know... Most of the time, I, I tend to miss that environment where you're kind of in this open air shop under a giant oak tree, and um, you know it's super quiet and peaceful. Uh, just so different from what was kind of where it has ended up with tools and an enclosed shop with good lighting and all that. Um, you know, the sounds bounce around, and sure. I've got music blaring all the time. So there's. <laughs> It wouldn't make sense for me to cut off the electricity at this point. Yeah. But what is your go-to work music? Do you have a go-to? You just listen to kind of everything. Kind of listen to everything. What have I been yeah. doing lately? I'll look on my Spotify real quick if you don't mind. <laughs> no. Um, gosh. Well, I guess John Prine was this week just because he was sure. in the ICU with this current COVID stuff. Um, yeah. And I was kind of raised on him. So that hit me pretty hard. So I was like, all right, John Prine it is on nice. Monday. So, yeah. The only reason I know of John Prine is because of the old brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack, which is a George Clooney movie that came out a long time ago. Yeah, that's a great film. Early 2000s. It was a really yeah. good movie. But his, his vocals are insane. Um, when it comes to chef's knives... When and you were first starting to make those at the at the village and just kind of in general, what what were some of your early inspirations? What were some of the knives that you were looking at? Um, just historical examples, or were there knives out in the world that you were admiring? Just historical. I mean, I don't even know where that came from, but the just the idea of a blacksmith knife with the forged handle. Uh, even more rustic than the work I'm putting out <laughs> currently. Sure. You know, it was even. It you was mean just, like a socket handle or? Just a forged, like okay. forged out the tang and yeah, wrapped it around. I don't, I, I don't know what you would call that. No wood on the handle. Um, right. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Just, I guess what I know now is a blacksmith knife. Um, yeah. And looking at examples there's a archaeology lab on site and steel doesn't last it rusts away iron you know rusts away so there wasn't a whole lot to look at you kind of had a skeleton of of something that may have been a knife and that's kind of i see there was a lot of freedom for interpretation there yeah absolutely um interesting yeah, so I, I kind of based what I was making off the needs of the people that were doing the cooking at the site, you know, that, that's size fair. and what what are they wanting to cut. And 
that, that was about it. I mean, I was... sure. Well, and historically yeah. speaking, I, I wouldn't imagine that they had too many cooking knives that were dedicated to just cooking. I would imagine right. that, you know, the knife that you also skin the animal with or whatever uh, was also the same knife that you used to cut the potatoes and onions and everything else. Yeah, that's a good point. Soup. Yeah. And these were thick old clunkers. I mean, they would have right. hopefully done that as well. So For sure, for sure. Um, so when did you kind of, I guess, how long, how long were you working at the village and before you decided to go full time? Um, what, you know, that's a question we get all the time, um, on the podcast is how do I know when I can go full time? Um, right. when did you know, uh, that it was right for you and, um, your partner for you to go full time? Right. Well, so I quit that job after three years when my wife was pursuing a grad program in Athens. Um, and it was kind of like stay at the state job and and keep doing the same thing or follow your heart um, and chase this girl up to Georgia. So I did that. And once <laughs> I, I mean, got to obviously. Georgia, yeah, obviously, come on, the right thing to do. <laughs> um, got to Georgia and juggled part-time jobs all over the place for couple years um, while still pursuing this knife venture on the back burner. So I did that two or three years. And, sure. and re really quick, what do you, what year was that? How, I guess, how many years ago was that? The year I, I went full time was the early part of 2014. And I remember it vividly because my cell phone started ringing in the middle of a oh. I used to record music. I tried to make money with that. And um, I was in a recording session and my phone started ringing and voicemail and I'd go check it in the bathroom and it was someone curious about a knife. Um, and I thought maybe this is where I quit all these part-time jobs. And um, so I did that and just put everything I had towards what I wanted to be doing. Yeah. Um, you know, up until that point, I'd been in a windowless room recording bands and it was a lot of fun, but I don't do well around all those um, substances and those kind of hours sure. and yeah. the lack of being outside. Um, it, it's just not healthy for, right. <laughs> for me or really... I don't believe anyone, but... Um... I mean, I think it's been <laughs> scientifically proven that it's actually beneficial to be outside. Yeah, sunlight um, is... Or get people. some outside time. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> um, so that was 2014, and that was kind of a result of just a small little thumbnail photo that came out in print in 2013. Um, okay. Where? And that was in a magazine, kind of a Southern lifestyle magazine called Garden and Gun. I was gonna. Um, I was gonna ask about that. And it was a holiday gift guide, and it was, it was nothing. It was like a crappy photo of a crappy knife. Um, <laughs> and it. It sounds like it did the job, though. It did the job. I mean, <laughs> it probably too soon for me, but, um, you know, I did, and still do a lot of learning on the job. You know, I think we all do, if if we're paying attention to, to oh, absolutely. What, what our knives are telling us. Um, For sure. And, so, and really quick, 
a, a lot of people, you know, and uh, we are, that's another question we get all, all the time is, you know, how do I build up my business or, and stuff, you know, uh, stuff along that, those lines, how did you end up getting in the garden gun? Did they reach out to you? Did you send them a feature like some photos and stuff and say, Hey, I'm a knife maker. And yeah, I, they have this annual award called made in the South awards. Um, right. And it's a $10,000 prize. I mean, that you've won that kind of money before, you, you know, it probably vaporizes before your eyes. It's nothing, but it's really <laughs> sure. that the exposure that you get that is, is really kind of the jump start to any business, in my right. opinion. Um, so you did win that? I did not win that. I got a, oh. a rejection and they said, but we'll keep you in mind for stuff in the future. And they put me in a, in the holiday gift guide of that same issue where they announced the awards. Um, oh, nice. And so that kind of was my training for what happened the following year where I did not win again, but I was a finalist. Um, so right. that's a third of a page or a half of a page you oh, know, wow. in there that, they write the story, they take the photograph, and then whatever they print, that's what you wind up selling. So I made a hell of a lot of cleavers for the first couple of right, years. that's a good point. Because um, that's what people are seeing. So they're like, oh, well, I want that. Right. So I'm, you know, I'm grateful to have had that opportunity. It was a great learning experience. It was a great life experience. Um, and I'm... I'm excited that I'm making more chef's knives now than cleavers. That was not always the situation. Um, And it felt like, man, I'm stuck in this box, this cleaver box that I can't get out of. (laughs) Um, But it was a a great, I mean, if there's one thing old saw blades excel at, it is being a cleaver. Um, There's even fewer saw blades out there that will make a good chef's knife um, just based on chemical analysis and testing and all of that. So, right. it, you know, it, it was, a it was better that it was a cleaver and not some very refined chef's knife that I had agreed to make a bunch of for sure. too low of a price. That's basically right. what it was, but <laughs> that gave idea. me, yeah, that was my springboard for getting out of the, the juggling part-time job stuff. And really, the main inspiration for that was working for myself and doing something I loved working with mm-hmm. my hands where I could always uh, continue my own sort of educational path that, that, that I want. If I want to get in more into this or that, that I can do that. And there's not a boss breathing down my neck saying, yeah, we need absolutely. you to really focus on, on this boring stuff over here right now because... <laughs> TPS reports. What, yeah, exactly. That stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was actually a question we had had recently on the podcast is about, you know, if I'm using reclaimed materials, um, how do I go about figuring out what it's made from or or just how do I do the best educated guess? So you got your start doing working with a lot of reclaimed stuff. How did you go about it? I went about it at first, just really people in the FABA group, Florida Artists Blacksmith Association. I'll just do a quick plug for them, blacksmithing.org. Y'all can edit that out if you want. Um, No, no, that's great. But a great group. And you'd get, you know, 
some of their founding members, some of these like old guys that have been blacksmithing for ages come up and say, hey, you want to make a knife? Like, use this section of steel that I got from a saw blade. And I didn't know anything about it. I just followed their instructions. It was a very I sort see. of folkways method of, of, of learning and making. Sure. Um, super old school, passing it down. Just super old school, yeah, just exactly, Marco. And um, that's how I started. But I wouldn't sell those knives. Those were all friends and families and mess-ups and yeah. all of that. Um, but the way I do it now, um, I shop test to the best of my abilities, forge, try a sort of general heat treat approach, see what the results are, break it, you know, look at it, meditate on it, um, whatever I need to do to feel, feel like I understand the steel. Um, sure. And if I get good results there, then I'll send it to a lab. And there's tons of labs out there. None of them are really cheap or affordable. It would be more cost-effective to just buy steel. Um, known virgin, steel. Known virgin steel. It would be cheaper. Sure. So you don't do it because it's the cheap thing to do. Um, so, yeah, once I feel good about a steel, then I'll send a section of it off to a lab, they only need like a square inch, and I'm happy to sacrifice that to have all the information they can tell you. And I should have sure. one of those uh, reports in front of me to tell you exactly what they're saying, but it's all right there. Um, right. So, yeah, for example, one year I sent 26 samples off. Oh boy. I talked them into the last year's price that was $75 a sample. So it's like serious money. Three yeah. of them came back as viable, good steel that I felt good <laughs> about using to make chef's knives. And I'm looking at these three saw blades. You know, I've maybe paid a hundred bucks for each of them, but then I paid two thousand dollars to test all that steel. But right, that's like the cost of doing business if you want to recycle steel because yeah. you can't be putting out a a knife with like. 0.4% carbon in it. That's just going to obliterate you off the map. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, so, and yeah, it's going to kill your reputation. Like, cool, you made a cool looking knife out of recycled material, but it doesn't work as a knife. <laughs> right. So, what's the point? <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, that's sort of my, my approach to testing. So, I'm always just stockpiling. And when I sure. When the end is near of that pile, I'll, I'll start saving up and send off another batch of samples. So, right. Um, so, as I mentioned mentioned earlier, you also do a lot of sand mai. How did how did you first get into sand mai? How did you learn about it? Um, you know what what sent you down that path? Gosh, I don't remember when I learned that it existed. I mean, it seems like laminated blades were kind of on my periphery from the dawn of me sort of having a brainwave ever. It, it just seemed like that with my exposure to antique tools through, you know, via my father. Um, mm, and that, that always intrigued me. Um, 
And I guess one year at Blade Show, I was like, I'm going to go see as many of the makers as I can see. It's like impossible to see everyone. <laughs> um, but uh, Bill Burke was there with his Hawaiian shirt and his beautiful Sanmai blades. Um, and I thought, like, that's, that's the fellow I, I'd like to learn this from if he's making this these laminated blades. That's who I want to go to. Um, right. So I spent five days with him, and I guess it was three years ago this year. Um, and we just focused on laminating stainless steel to 52100, and that was kind of the start, the little kick in the butt I needed just to be like, hey, Will, you can do this in your own shop. Sure. Um, like, go do it. So that's when it all started. And it, it's always seemed a reasonable way to make a knife because you're, you know, sharpening and maintaining that knife and you're removing a lot of soft steel from the cladding. So, right. um, I don't know. It happens to look nice in my opinion. So it, it just speaks to me. Yeah, no. And you do a phenomenal job. I think it's the work, the sand, my, Forged blades that you do are some of the best that that I've seen. Thanks, uh, you man. Do an, yeah, absolutely. You do an incredible job keeping. I, I've tried Sanmai a few times myself, and I don't. I I just I haven't had a lot of time on it, and maybe that's just what I. I just need to do like an intensive like week long forging Sanmai, um, just blade after blade after blade to get the hang of what's going on because I, I always get it off center a little bit here or there or a lot of it at places where I don't want it to be off center. Right. And I really struggle with that. And um now I, even now when I'm when I'm not forging um or when I'm forging like my regular Damascus or monosteel, I try <clears throat> to make sure I'm forging as evenly as possible either side. Just with the idea in the back of my head that you know, if I if I gotta pretend like this is Sanmai, and you know, if if this was Sanmai, I'd have to forge really evenly to make sure that core stays center. But, um, you know, what were some of the big, what were some of the big challenges at the at the front of just any of this? Was it getting the steel to stick? Was it uh, keeping the core centered? What were some of the big challenges that you've come up against in making Sanmai blades? Yeah, keeping the core centered continues to be. A challenge um and i would say that from the start that was in my memory the one of the most concerning issues of you know you spend this extra time on a blade and and you finish it up and the core is like out of whack um, right one of the biggest things i've done to correct that which i'm doing less now is like a full spheroidizing is that mm. am i saying that right i'm probably yeah. butchering it uh anneal and cold forging the whole blade and that helps center that core um i can't explain why but if you go over the entire surface of that blade with a hammer while it's cold your core will just be much more centered um and it may just have to do with the fact that you can see what's going on when it's not glowing hot. Right. Um, so um, that would be 
that would be one main challenge and i guess the other is just warping during grinding because your blade is not going to be this rigid thing it's not flimsy floppy but your hard steel is a third of the thickness of the blade so you know you're applying a lot of pressure during grinding or at least i am um yeah and it warps so you have to be fairly consistent and even with your grind go back and forth and check for straightness more than you think you need to um, sure. And you can yeah, always never... just tap it with a hammer and straighten it, you know, and I do that all the time with this stuff. Um, yeah, that's something I never really took into consideration. I've never done like a true sandmine. I've always made it out of all hardenable material. So the blade hardness and the way it grinds has always been basically the same. Right. Um, but I never thought about how, you know, the... The, that fact that the core is only one third of the overall composition of the steel, and so it and which is the benefit and kind of kind of the reason to do it is to lend that toughness to the super hard core material, but at the same time it wiggling and wobbling all over the place while grinding has never crossed my mind right well, that's one thing I, at least I've run up against um, sure. and even just last night in the shop was running up against it, so sure. It's not going anywhere as far as I can tell, you know, until I learn from another, like, master smith that says, hey, Will, like, you're doing this all backwards, try this. Um, right. But to me, it seems like that's going to be an ongoing thing with these thin chef's knives. Yeah. W with tough but not hard cladding. So, yeah. That sounds good. Yeah. yeah, love it. And also, I just realized, I don't know if I said this at the top of the show, but if anybody uh, wants to see Will's work, go on Instagram at Heartwood Forge, and um, you can see his work all over the place. And actually, one of the big things, one of the real big things also that I wanted to get you on the show about was one of your most recent projects, which has actually been kind of a collaborative project in working with other artisans and crafters in, um, in doing kind of a f fundraising raffle for to help support uh, restaurant workers. Can you tell me about that? I can tell you all about it. Um, Let's hear it. I started maybe two and a half weeks ago, and right when this coronavirus stuff hit the fan and was making headlines, and I had four customers cancel orders in a week, and it just oh, wow. it shook my earth because I thought, you know, I'm, I'm immune to this. It's not going to affect me economically. I, I work in the backyard. Yeah, I got sure. the social distancing on. <laughs> right. I got, you know, I got the income going on. And then yeah. that's when I realized, like, this is a big situation. It's affecting almost 8 million restaurant workers in just our nation alone. And they're going, you know, they're losing their jobs. They're getting the boot. They're expected to just go jump through the ropes and jump through the hoops. Yeah, whatever. And right. get unemployment. Yeah, and like it's going like, on. yeah. Oh, what a shitty system. Pardon my French. Or what a crappy system that is. Um, you know, just, it's awful. And I'm, yeah. I'm like supported by restaurants, essentially. So it's a matter so, of time before me and all the other chef's knife makers out there dry up. And I thought, like, I need to give back to this community. This is... Like, I couldn't concentrate in the shop. Like, I wasn't getting work done anyways. I was just, like, sure. you know, a mess. 
Um, so I thought I'd just raffle off, as us knife makers do, we seem to raffle off our work. Um, <laughs> sure. A tiny little integral I'd finished up recently. And I thought maybe I can donate $1,000 at best with, with the raffle proceeds. Um, yeah. And after two or three days of promoting it, I think Jason Knight shouted out and uh, Chef Sean Brock shouted out. And then okay. we got just out of the blue some friends, a good friend of mine, Colin O'Reilly, who blows beautiful glass, um, makes decanter sets and rocks glasses in North Carolina with using local quartz. Um, it's like the most beautiful glass work I've ever seen. Um, yeah. And he's... He just had his third kid and he's just laid off his or furloughed his employee because restaurants support him too. And his orders dried up and he was like, Hey, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll throw down on this if you want. And then we got a guy that makes frying pans that just donated out of the blue and it just started spiraling and gained this like crazy amount of momentum. And suddenly we had $5,000 in raffle ticket sales and then, we were approaching 10 and then we stormed yeah. through 20 and 40 and like i'm about to cut a check for for almost 55 grand to this nonprofit in new york city that um <laughs> set up this emergency covid relief fund for restaurant workers and they've got this right. all-star board um people from nonprofits and bar managers from momofuko and like right this incredible team and they were sure. probably the first one on the scene addressing this issue. And I think to date they've, they've raised 2.5 million just in their emergency fund, yeah, which is available to restaurant workers and other nonprofits supporting restaurant workers that are out of work because of all this. But even mm. at two and a half million dollars, that's a drop in the bucket for what, <laughs> for what we need. Right, um, sure. But, you know, it just was me doing anything I could do. And we had many knife makers reach out and donate stuff, which was awesome and not surprising given the strong community that, that the knife world sort of beholds. Um, and the artisan community, they really showed up because everyone loves to eat and everyone that it seems like I know makes stuff sort of that revolves around eating food. Um, right. So it's definitely near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. And I'm like honored. I mean, it's not me. It's just I'm like thrilled that there was so much support. It was this stream of positivity and sort of gave me something personally to focus on versus the headlines. Right. No, um, I mean, it's absolutely, I think it's absolutely incredible. And I think, you know, um, I unfortunately oh, you shouted out too. Sorry, America. I missed that. Thank you. No, no, no. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I, I've been kind of overwhelmed by, by everything also, and just have been trying to keep my head down. And I'm glad that you reached out to me. Uh, Cause I had no idea that it was going on and to already see the amount of, you know, the amount of momentum that you'd built up to that point. And you've, you reached out at around the $5,000 point in, I think it only had a really like maybe another few days left, maybe four or five days left. And right. then you went from 5,000 to almost 55,000 in five days. I mean, that's, you know, it, I, 
and I know you said it feels like it's a drop in a bucket, but that is far and beyond what I've ever heard, you know, anybody else doing to support um, any nonprofits. Um, you know, I, I've done my share of uh, donating to nonprofits and stuff like that, but yeah. with, with my knife work, but it's, it's never been at that level. That's, and I think it's really incredible. And especially that you've been able to, yeah, get these people, this community to rally around this, this, this need and this, this want to support. I think that was phenomenal. And, uh, your friend, Anne is actually, she's carrying, uh, carrying it on and trying to raise another round, right? Yeah, she is, and it's going really well. Um, shout out to Lynn Valley Forge. I don't know him personally, but Beautiful Knives has donated a full custom towards that cause. I donated a nice. small Senmai burden trout. Uh, I don't know what you call it, blacksmith knife. No, no wooden scales on it. Sure. And I think uh, Stoned Knives, I also don't know him, but has donated a, a very cool-looking knife. Um, so yeah, Ann Ladson, she's a Charleston-based metalsmith that I met through that whole garden and gun thing, and we've been like, we've become like incredibly close friends over the course of the last four or five years. Um, sure. And she just reached out and was like, "I can donate, or you know, we could do a second raffle if there's a lot of momentum." And I was like do that because I would, I'd like to extend the, the deadline on mine and keep it going. But with, with the amount of emailing that it right. was, that was involved with it. Um, I mean, it was unexpected. I was thankful to have that sort of that work in front of me. It felt like I'm working for a real cause. Um, yeah. but I had to get back into the shop and, and get some sleep and everything, everything in my life went on hold. Sure. So well, she, I imagine there's a lot that goes into organizing and coordinating with everybody. Right. Yeah. And it was all just sort of, um, just as it, I don't know what you say. It's all sort of grassroots or organic. It was, um, someone DMs you and says, Hey, can I get in on this? And it's like, sure. Shoot me an email. Let me put down what I'm doing and update the website. And, you know, with that level of that number of transactions, you get people with questions and sure. all sorts of stuff. So, right. um, so when Anne offered to take, take the lead on that, it was like, sure, I can send you all the overflow donations. Um, and she just, she's been doing her own thing. I don't know what she's up to now, but it looks like it's doing really well. That's awesome. Um, and she'll be drawing tomorrow, Friday at noon, I guess. I don't know when this podcast is out, but <laughs> sure. um, can edit I don't know all either. Out. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, it's, it'll be fine. But yeah, so she's, she's a former restaurant worker of over 15 years. And oh, wow. like, if it's dear to anyone's heart, it's dear to Anne's heart. And she's, she's an yeah. incredibly hard worker. She's talented and she's passionate. So she's like the, she was like, it doesn't seem like it's that much work. Will I'm like, Oh, See, that's why you're good for doing this. <laughs> I shouldn't have been doing this. <laughs> but yeah. Some so people, it, that's just their strength, man. That's right. So she is definitely strong. Yeah. And she, she does, uh, what is she? She makes utensils. Uh, is that what I was seeing? 
yeah she's she's a designer she does a lot of cast uh cast bronze cast silver she does a lot of beautiful jewelry um that's way beyond anything that i can understand um but when i can afford it i'll i'll buy some for my wife and you know it's freaking awesome i'd wear it if i could get away with it you know (laughs) but um well yeah what else she's yeah she was when we met she was mostly making serving wear and like bone marrow spoons and like barnacle encrusted place settings like crazy stuff and um, just things you don't see every day that just right take your dining room to the next level absolutely Um, and and, yeah oh sorry go ahead oh no she just she's doing a lot of casting and fabricating and forging and she kind of just seems like she does it all so love it yeah so if people want to well i guess (laughs) it's gonna be too late by the time this goes out i was gonna say oh where can people like find her and share it but uh It, it sounds like, nonetheless, go check out her work. It's, I mean, I've seen it myself. It's beautiful stuff. And if you want some inspiration, she's definitely a good resource for that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and if, if people want to help with that cause, um, they can just donate directly, you know, to the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to bring up their website right now. Sure. Uh, don't know if that's going to happen. That's okay. Okay, it's yeah, just it... restaurantworkerscf.org. CF, okay. CF is yeah, community, can... yeah. So. And those funds are available to restaurant workers, and you said nonprofits as well around the country? Right, nonprofits that are supporting the same cause. Sure. Um, just because they're drawing in like giant corporate donors and have a ton right. of money. So 50% um, goes for direct relief to individual restaurant workers, 25% for nonprofit organizations um, serving restaurant workers in the crisis, and then seven, uh, 25% for zero interest loans for restaurants to get back up and running. Wow. Um, That's incredible. And you can make a donation directly on their website. It's probably the easiest and simplest way to do it um and if you want to reach out to me if i know of a third raffle going on if you want to donate or buy tickets you know i'll i can direct you there at the time but um at the moment it will probably be over at that point so just donate directly yeah it's um yeah but it sounds like they're definitely a good good place to uh contribute if you if you're in the position to do that that's the hardest thing about when this, these kind of things happen and, and people want to contribute, it's hard to know where to actually send that money and what, who are trustworthy foundations. Because unfortunately, there are really crappy people out there who will happily take advantage of situations like this and try to make money off of it. Right. And so knowing what's the real deal and what's not is, is huge. It is a huge barrier for a lot of people in contributing. And so just knowing that that the the restaurant workers community foundation uh is is a reliable place to go to is awesome so i appreciate you appreciate Uh, you doing that absolutely i'm I'm completely inspired by it and um and you know helping to kind of vet 
um, <laughs> kind of a, somewhere to go to to help. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Those of us that aren't feeling the pinch yet, um, yeah, that's a great place to put our resources. Um, so, and if you can only part ways with a with a single item, like do run your own raffle. It may inspire others to jump on board and just sure keep it going. If if you get the ball in your court, you know. Um, so yeah. Yeah, thanks for supporting it so so well, Mariko. And you yeah. know, oh. you especially and lots of other knife makers, some of our clients are affected by this, but some are are like way above being affected by this um, yeah. economically. And they're some of the best donors. Um so spread the word and you know, get get the cause out if it's something you believe in to your customer base. And yeah do what we can do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, kudos to you, my friend. Thanks, brother. All right. Well, I think with that, we're in a good place to move on with the rest of the show. Um, but before we get going, I want to talk about combat. So we were talking about, you know, you draw filing and then eventually getting a grinder. I think actually you have a video a promo video on your website. It's beautiful video uh, and you're working on uh one i think it's a grizzly i believe is does that tall upright grinder um but <clears throat> you know when you when you're working on e any kind of grinder you definitely need belts and combat abrasives has got you covered with a 15 percent discount so if you go and check out combat abrasives get whatever you need and then uh throw in the all caps knife talk 15 promo code at checkout you will save 15 percent. and either you can put that 15 percent keep you know keep it in the keep it in your savings account or maybe there's an opportunity to try something uh that you've never used before they have all kinds of great surface conditioning belts um buffer uh you know uh what is it the comp buffing compounds they have these wild structured new structured abrasives i've i've never seen before uh, they're they're pretty nice. So go give Combat Abrasives a try. Go check them out. Save yourself fifteen percent again at CombatAbrasives.com with promo code KnifeTalk15. And with that, let's talk about. Well, actually, let's do a quick last week recap. I mean, I guess your last week has been pretty much filled with, um, you know, the the, the raffle. But what else do you have on your bench? Or what do you what are you getting started now? Gosh, I spent four hours in the shop last week, so it was pretty piddly. Um, <laughs> and I also recently sold my kiln because I'm getting an, a, uh, an upgrade. And so I'm without kiln. So I'm doing a lot of forging and just getting things ready okay. for heat treat. Um, yeah. I'm working on a set of six customs for a customer that's been real patient with me. Um, wow. And that includes some sanmai. And every time I make sanmai, I go ahead and make a few extra billets. So sure, um, got some wrought iron cladding in there and some stainless cladding in there. Um, and I'm doing my best not to mess up some feather pattern that I <laughs> tried to make like six months ago, and I've been afraid to touch it. But uh, I dug sure. into that yesterday. And um, all right. Trying to do more integrals this year just because, I, I mean, it's inspiring to see the work from makers like yourself 
Um, mm. And I feel like as a knife maker, uh, it's like a great forging exercise. It's just, move at, you know, getting that transition area forged in as, as best as you can. Like there's infinite room for growth right there for me. Um, oh, absolutely. So I'm trying I'm to still, do... I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> uh, you, you figured out quite a bit. Um, <laughs> but I'm trying to do more of those just intentionally maybe they don't have homes but i just want to get better at that a lot of a lot of that's been sort of inspired by my proximity to jason knight since moving to east tennessee um, oh sure we moved up here around the same time and he's been real uh sharing with his time and sort of just open door policy at his shop anytime i can get away um so i get up there and you know he and his daughter and curtis and everyone up there is just making integrals all day long so all day uh, <laughs> all day every day all day yeah. every day um, <laughs> how far is he from you or how close is he to you oh gosh 20 miles maybe i mean oh my god just like a, right up that's a hell of a resource holy smokes. hell of a resource yeah so <laughs> you go in there and you're just like or for me i'm like why even why do i even try but there's like he's just he's one of those encouraging sort of mentor type badasses that that you know just makes that difference you leave the shop and you're like i should go try that again um so yeah love it well for me this last week uh ugh, i've been so i've been working on this giant chef's knife or actually i've been calling it the the butcher sword but it's a it's a 14 inch butcher's scimitar uh so it's got a long sweeping tip and uh it's a giant knife and it's i just i've been going working so slowly on it because part of me it, i it sorry i'm struggling right now you're uh, excited it, i'm excited <laughs> understandably <don't> <laughs> it uh you know it has an integral guard on it and I've never done an integral guard, and so I've been very slow and meticulous um, and careful more than anything. It's slow and careful in removing material and, you know, trying not to push things too far because um, that's always been a problem I've had with anything is even if it's like food. You know, if I'm salting something, I'm like, oh, I feel like I could do it. Go take a little bit more. And I've just put that last little pinch was just too much. And I'm just like, damn it, I just ruined the whole thing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I don't want to start over on this. So I've been working really slowly on it. But I finally have gotten to the point. Uh, the handle's all sculpted and done. The guard is all sculpted. And so now I'm just doing the finishing touches on the blade, getting uh, kind of like the the choil area cleaned up and uh the spine cleaned up and then i'm going to be working to pull out the hormone um i've actually before i even did any real soup like getting too heavy into the blade finishing i i did a couple um experiments with how with a, a, another blade that i have just kind of laying around um of how to really try to pull out the hormone and make it pop and um you know, I tried a bunch of different aesthetics and actually sent some of those to the customer just to see what he thought. You know, I, I was like, you know, we could go this route, which is kind of a more traditional, higher polished look. Or we can go this other route, which is not necessarily as traditional, but it has a really 
high contrast and really uh, is very stark and and in your face kind of hormone. He's like, let's go with that one. So um, I'm excited to do that. And in in kind of like preparing it, I can already see that the the I almost call it Woots the W two has uh like a heavy banding activity in the blade and it looks awesome it looks like like antique damascus or you know woots pattern blades and um so i'm really excited in the next couple days to get that finished up get photos taken you know this is such a big knife and this is one of the more unique blades i've ever made i i'm half tempted to send it out to get like professional photographs done of it because I just, I'm really happy with how it's coming together. Who would you and, use um, for your photos? I would probably, <clears throat> I would probably send them to Jim Cooper, Sharp by Coop on Instagram. Okay. Um, just because you know, I I know that, uh, I know he does a good job. He has experience with very with large things. You know, he photographs everything from swords down to paring knives and, and little folders. And so I, I know he, ha- he know, he has the know-how to get it done um, properly. And, and he's also, he's a, for folks who don't know, Jim is actually a collector of knives as well. And so he's very care, uh, you know, he's very careful with handling the blades and taking care of them um, because he just, he knows how to do that. I mean, it's, it's, kind of his job as a photographer but he takes it to another level um as as a collector as well and in you know one of the benefits of sending your knives out to be photographed by a professional photographer whether it be cooper or anybody else um is that they usually push those knives those photographs on to magazines because the magazines are always looking for content and so um they're saying you know what do you got what's new and he'll he pushes it forward and they you know ultimately the magazine decides what they want to publish but um a lot of people get their work into magazines because of jim cooper and, and other professional photographers and jim also has i think he's got over a hundred thousand followers on instagram hmm. so um he he always posts up on his instagram too what he's taking pictures of and so and promotes kind of the the makers in that way and uh so he he does you know while it is can be a little bit on the spendy side um the 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 pr work that comes out of it is i think is it's hard to beat the price point um for that as well not only you get great photographs but you get some you get him promoting your stuff so right that's what i'm well that's what i'm thinking have you have you sent your work out to be professionally photographed yeah, I sent my first, like, I guess everyone sends their first, like, whatever knife out. Um, sent my first Damascus Sanmai to Jim, um, mm. which was probably not a great idea in, the <laughs> in hindsight. But I was just so oh, excited really? that I'd done this <laughs> thing, you know, it worked. And, it, um, and then I've been sending to... Um, Gosh, of course, I'm going to blank on his name. Royer, Caleb. Caleb, um, yeah. Been sending to him just maybe a couple times in the past year or two. Sure. Um, but yeah, it is, it is spendy, but that for the exposure that you get, it's well worth it. So, And the photos right. always look like perfect. You're just like, oh, yeah. What are you doing there? Um, yeah. Well, and what's, 
what's also good is not only do you get the photographs, but you know, if Garden and Gun reaches back out to you and you have professional photos of your work, you know, obviously you're going to send them those um cuz just the the likelihood of those getting published is way higher when it's been professionally photographed. Right. And so that's another strong reason to get your work professionally photographed. Right. Um I do know that uh who is it? You did a collaboration with Don Wynn, uh was it last year or the year before? And that got photographed. Uh, beautiful. Yeah, Jim beautiful photographed that. Um yeah, Jim photographed that, I think. Um yeah. yeah, Don kinda showed me what you could do with Sanmai. Um just his mm. level of finish and attention to detail and you know, getting getting to see it in you know in person afterwards was like it was eye opening. Of course I've seen his work at Blade. Um sure. but I haven't seen his most recent work. So that was it was pretty cool to get to work with him in that way and um you know send off this like rustic bar of steel and uh, right have him do his his don thing to it so uh, his don thing his don thing winning uh, <laughs> <laughs> um that's actually a, an interesting concept i never even th- i've never that's never crossed my mind to do a collaboration just to see how somebody else uses your material and what you can learn from it. Um, and not necessarily that that's what your plan was, but that that was the result is really interesting that you also, not only did you get to do this one collaboration, but you learned at the same time, which is a really cool idea. Right. Yeah. I think, yeah, just being observant and seeing it yeah. and, and realizing like you can take this to any level you want. For um, sure. So, and, Don has his level that he takes it to. <laughs> so, yeah, just yeah. seeing that and being, you know, having more of a vested interest in it. Uh, maybe I paid closer attention than normal. So, um, right. Yeah. Love it. I, gosh. Uh, I had a question real quick. I oh, noticed, yeah, go ahead. You know, this isn't me interviewing you, but I'm looking at this picture of the knife you said you were working on. Yeah. And the integral guard. And I'm just curious. I see, you know, like Adam DeRozier and I don't know, all these knife makers seem that uh, that may even be wrong. Maybe not Adam. People are doing that all the time. And it just like boggles my mind that first you're making this like perfect integral, but you're also forging this like pretty complex shape into the sure the bolster area. Um what was that like being, I mean, you said it was it's, your first, first try, first, first go at it? Uh, well, for this knife, I've actually done a couple. I've done a few integral guards Okay. Uh, in the past. This will be the first one, though, that I've, <laughs> that I've finished out. And so okay. when, when I say I've done a few in the past, I don't know if the other ones are necessarily viable. But, it, you know, it took, it's figuring out how to isolate and where where to move material um and all that it it definitely took me a few tries with previous runs just previous ones that were just experiments and fun you know seeing the work of adam derogers or mike quesenberry um with their integral guard work um i always see that i'm like how how the hell did they do that and so 
um, you know, I try to try to do my best to attempt it before ever bugging anybody. And so I've forged out um, probably three or four integral guard knives in the past. And um, the, the one, the last one I did before this, I think was probably my greatest success. Um, it's a big old chopper. It definitely takes inspiration from Adam DeRozier and kind of Jason Knight's work. Um, and it has a large uh, uh, integral guard on it. And the kind of typically with the guard part or what's called the lug is the part that comes out over the top of your fingers and kind of protects your fingers in a way. Um, I, I, I got the, the movement on that that I really wanted. Um, and that's probably one of the more challenging portions of of forging one of those integral guards. But, uh, you know, it's just making use of the tools that you have available. At least for me, that's what it was. And just using, like, you know, a post vice was actually pretty... Uh, I don't mean to use the word integral for integral <laughs> uh, conversation, but it was pretty integral into in making that integral guard happen. Um, there's basically at least none no other ways that i could think of holding the blade and isolating that material and drawing out that lug um and giving it that look of a real like an actual forged into shape kind of integral guard mm -hmm. knife and so um yeah it's tricky but and I, you know, I kind of, I try to use my uh, reverse engineering brain that I use for Damascus. I tried to do the same thing with a forge stuff. I do it with forge stuff all the time. Whenever, especially when I first started seeing like people's, uh, especially like Pat Quinn or, or Jake Farum's, uh, you know, hammers. I'm like, how? Cause they, they finish them so clean and it's all forge finish and it's so clean. And I'm just like, how the fuck did they do that? Excuse me. <laughs> but I just it just blows my mind, right? And and so I I do as much looking through their Instagrams and stuff like that to see what kind of hints I can I can glean out of their Instagram, and then I just kind of put them together and write down like kind of a procedure that I might be able to follow. But I haven't forged any hammers yet. I would love to. Um, drifting holes in the hammer is actually oddly enough is the most a stressful thing I can think about is uh, I just I have no experience drifting any holes of any kind, and um, and so that that's the one thing that's the most foreign when it comes to moving the material around. That kind of makes sense to me, but drifting the holes doesn't. And so, and I've seen it done a few times, and it it makes sense when I see it, but just doing it myself, I don't have the proper equipment. I don't think either to do it. Um, right. So. Anyways, yeah. Well, yeah, I can't wait to see your finished uh fourteen inch butcher with the integral guard that's the, gonna the be the butcher sword. I showed my son sword. actually the butcher sword the other day and he's like, Wow. And the damn thing's almost as long as he is tall. That's awesome. <laughs> uh it looked like with him holding it, I should actually get a picture of him holding it. Um, it looks like a legit sword because of how long it is compared to his overall height um it's pretty sweet that's awesome that is <laughs> awesome um but talking about finishing blades one of the big the most important things especially about hand finishing any knife is hand sanding and uh indasa makes rhino wet rhino wet was made famous i think 
realistically by Mr. Nick Wheeler. Bow, bow, bow. Um, <laughs> because of his awesome instructional videos. But I, all, all the best makers I know use Indasa. And the, the hand sanding paper that they make is, it's, you know, it's, you know, other stuff sands. But Indasa withstands all of the abuse. It lasts so much longer. And um, a quick tip with Indasa sandpaper that I've started doing lately, especially when I'm starting in the coarser grits at like 220 and even 400, um, is that I'll start really light hand sanding this handing hand sanding my blade very light pressure and trying to let just the the natural gravity and just inst- uh do the work in hand sanding before it gets to a point where it feels like it's not really doing anything and then I'll add a lot more pressure and kind of crush into that abrasive um I've I've been finding I get a lot more work out of a piece of sandpaper when I hand sand that way than I normally would because I feel like if because it's alumina oxide, uh, which is just one various type of abrasive, but it crush w- one of the the benefits of alumina oxide is that it's is its friability and friability just means how easily it breaks down, and so um, when you're crushing in and using a lot of pressure right off the bat, you're crushing basically crushing right through that abrasive versus starting light getting a little bit of work out of it at the light pressure and then advancing to a higher pressure to get the last bit of work out of it because even that light pressure that abrasive is breaking down at that already at that point and then adding more pressure breaks it down the rest of the way to get the rest of the work out of it um if you want to get a hold of some rhino wet go go over our friends texas farrier supply they uh, have a Knife Talk 10 promo code that not only will save you 10% on any of the Rhino Wet that you buy, uh, but anything that you get from them. Uh, they have handle materials, uh, spacer material. They have all kinds of equipment. They have files and also like anything that a ferry would need because first and foremost, they are a ferry supply shop, but they also have all the knife making stuff that you could use and need. So... Go check them out. Indasa USA Rhino Wet that you can get at Texas Farrier Supply with Knife Talk 10 promo code 10. Save yourself 10%. All right. Let's get in. Well, I would say let's get into the news, but there isn't a lot of news really right now no. other than probably everything that you thought you were going to go do is shut down. And, and reasonably so, just to keep. Uh, you know, the spread of this uh, coronavirus from getting worse than it already is. It's, it's, a, it's pretty shocking and amazing uh, at how debilitating this, this thing has been for the world. Um, and also, uh, something that I've seen a lot of confusion about is what it's called. You know, COVID-19, coronavirus, also SARS-2. Uh, they all are the same thing. Um, they're all referring to the same kind of virus and, and disease, resulting disease. So don't get confused when you hear somebody throw something else out there. They're all still talking about the same thing. So if you thought you had plans or you had plans to go somewhere and do something really fun and cool, you might want to double check those, any kind of knife shows or symposiums and all that kind of stuff that's supposed to be happening. 
you might want to make different plans. So, <laughs> with that, <That's> right. we, <laughs> yeah, super bummer. Uh, we will get into our Q and A. Uh, so I put. Oh wait, sorry. Up, up. I don't. I don't remember what the. Uh, hey man, can I ask you a question? Is maybe that's it. Um, <laughs> that was really good, wasn't it? Yeah, that's I'm really great. good at. <laughs> hey man, can I ask you a question? I always want it to be like a surfer dude. Yeah, I don't know why. Hey man, can I ask you a question? Uh, so I put out on Instagram. Uh. Just just yesterday, actually, I put out a question, a call for questions regarding uh, anything to do with Damascus and San Mai. You know, we get the, the Damascus questions peppered in the show here and there. But I thought, especially having Will on and with his um, experience in making San Mai, uh, we could kind of double down and make it kind of a focused Q&A session about Damascus and San Mai. So I have all the questions here, and I'll just start digging through them. This first one is from Lynn Valley Forge. He says, what are the dimensions that make up your final billet you forge your integral blades from? So he's asking what, what size chunk of steel am I starting with? And, um, and so when I start my integral knives, uh, one of the things that I found to be beneficial, especially with uh, trying to get a decent heel height for a chef's knife, at least, um, which I'm usually shooting for around two and a quarter, two and an eighth of an inch. Um, you know, I like to start with a little height. So ideally, you know, around an inch and a half um, already wide uh, for the heel height. And then thickness wise for my integral bolsters, you know, I usually want the integral bolster to be at least three quarters of an inch thick um, to just give me plenty of room to sculpt around and, and to account for any decarb that might happen through the heat treating process. Uh, and then the length just depends on the size of the knife. So if it's an eight inch, an eight inch chef's knife, you know, about three inches is plenty. Uh, three and a half, I, I can get a 10 inch knife um, and so on and so forth. So basically like an, a half an inch for every extra inch I want after that. Um, I actually think I did forge a non or sorry, an integral mono steel from like two and a half inches by one and a half by a three quarter inch, uh, eight inch chef's knife out of that. Um, and it's just being able to move material hammers, power hammers really make a difference. Um, but you can definitely do it with hand hammers. It's just, uh, practice and practice and getting accurate. Those, um, you you said you just forged an integral. How did you decide, Will? How did you decide what dimensions you wanted to start with to forge that that blade? Well, I started with pretty much the same size you said there. Um, mm. Just kind of looking at it and think, you know, I think okay, I want it to be this thick when I'm done with it. How how thick is it now? Multiply that, yeah. you know, to get your length and. Um, it's really guesswork. I tend to to way overshoot it and wind up with way too much steel. Which sure. So that's something I'm constantly learning is that you can you can ask a lot more out of your steel. Um, you know, as you, I mean, points you can add a length an inch to the length of a knife with a with a point. 
you know, just forging your point and then you yeah. take it thin and there there's two, two more inches. So, I mean, sure. Yeah. I'm not real methodical on that. It's a lot of, you know, guesswork. I'm, I kind of come from the mindset of if I do this enough times, then I don't have to have like a formula. I just kind of know it. Um, <laughs> sure. But I haven't done it enough times yet, so I'm still learning. Uh, right. But I wrote down those dimensions, and I'm going to go measure what I started with yesterday and see. Nice. Um, I, I do have a little bit of a formula, but it's kind of hard to explain uh, just audibly. So I think, you know, I haven't done a Pattern Welded Wednesday in a long time. So today, I think we're, oh wait, today's Thursday. Well, anyway, you missed it, buddy. I missed it. <laughs> I missed my opportunity. I can never do it. No, uh, it's been well, shut I guess down I won't due to do COVID. It. Yeah, <laughs> I guess I won't do it for Pattern Metal Wednesday. I'll just do it in general. Uh, but post up kind of my my kind of mathematical equation that I've come up with for figuring out how much material I need. And then based on knowing how much material I need, uh, like volume-wise, then I can figure out my dimensions of my start billet from there. Um, it's just all math stuff. It's basic math. It's basic algebra. Um, but just thinking about it in that context has always been... Um, it has always surprised me how much I use my, my high school algebra <laughs> to figure out Damascus <laughs> stuff. All right, this next one is from Ethan J. Taha. He says, how do, let's see, how do pure copper nickel layers work in Sanmai? Do you have any experience with that? So this one's definitely more geared for you, um, Mr. Will Manning. Yeah, pure copper nickel? Copper. Uh, so my guess is that he's talking about, have you seen like, a, who is it, Takafu? That yeah. makes kind of like that yeah, brass, that. copper, cop and nickel stuff. Mm -hmm. I have no idea how that. I mean, I have a guess at how that works, but I think it's. The, I use a lot of pure nickel in my sandmai. Um, sure. And from what I've, I have not tried it. I have no experience with the copper. I'm afraid to have copper near my ferric. I heard it contaminates right. it, so I'm like, I don't. <laughs> yeah. That stays under my bench. I don't use it very often. Um, sure. I think it's the same. Maybe I should go try this. Um, I think it's got a very high melting point, as does nickel. Um, a high melting point? Okay. I, I think so. I should look it yeah, up. Yeah, I can't. I, I can't remember myself, <laughs> personally. We're doing a great job answering this. My yeah. biggest concern <laughs> would be <laughs> that if it did have a lower melting point, actually forging that material would be a bit challenging. Um, because because of the rate at which it wants to move, um, I don't think I don't think you could really like forge an integral knife or something out of that. Because what would happen is the core material wouldn't really go anywhere, but the uh, but the cladding would go all over the place. And so that's more of a material that you might want to uh, just buy as a sheet and then stock remove from because. Yeah, I don't. I just don't. I don't know how forging works with that. Right. I don't know if it does realistically. The melting point of copper is 1984. What year were you born, Marco? That was the year I was born. Me too. I was born in August. August 21st. When is your birthday? August 16th. What the hell? Holy shit! <laughs> <laughs> You're older than me, you old bastard. 
Oh, damn. That, um, that's why I'm balding. Yeah, um, I think yeah I don't know how the forging copper would be. Oh, I mean, people do it, but yeah. if if it's melting at that temperature, that means you want to work considerably lower than that temperature, probably at least 100 or two, if not 200 degrees, which puts you working at just under 1,800 degrees and getting any forge to run that low unless it's a very unless you're working out of a kiln or working out of a uh you know a like a ribbon burner with a with a thermal couple and a temperature control and all that kind of stuff you're going to be in a hard place to try to figure out what that temperature actually looks like by eye there's no way you could trust that i feel like i feel like i would i after all my experience i would have a hard time trusting knowing what the, even the difference between 1600 and 1900 degrees actually looks like, you know? And so, yeah, that would be, I, I would say not forging them is the answer. Don't forge them. <laughs> there is a knife maker in Austria that does a lot of copper. And I don't know if he's buying, uh, buying sheets of pre-laminated steel or not, but sure. he's, he's on Instagram is at, D-A-V dot W-O-L-K-E. Do you know him, Mareko? Dav Wolk? I feel like I've definitely seen that kind of stuff. All right, so this is my guess at how something like that would work. And so uh, is his stuff the, the stuff with the Damascus in the core, and then there's, like, the copper layer, and there's more Damascus? Hmm, let's see. I'm mostly seeing... Blacked out steel on either side of the copper with a big copper core band in it or a big copper band. Okay. Well, I I think either way, whether it's Damascus or mono steel, I think the way that works is one, you would need a nickel shim on either side of the copper just to get it to stick. Cause I don't think the copper wants to stick the steel. Um, and, and then secondly, you know, uh, again, you wouldn't really want to do a whole lot of forging. And so how I would lay it out is get sheets that are basically all cut the same size of steel and nickel and copper and nickel and steel and so on and so forth until you got your layup and then put it, you know, either TIG weld the joints all the way around or, or wrap it somehow. And then, um, and then either gently press it, but most ideally, run it through a rolling mill and just you know do a couple passes heat it pass it through the rolling mill heat it pass it through the rolling mill and probably by the third or fourth roll and each one is a, a just a light reduction um you should have a solidly welded material but at that point you don't forge it you stock remove from there and um that would be my take but I'm right now I'm kind of talking out my ass because <laughs> I have no idea how I would even if that would even really work. I, nope. The only way I would be able to know is by just experimenting and trying it. So if you try that, Ethan, good luck. Uh, all right. This next one is from Jay Steel Smithing. He says, uh, oh, wait, this guy sent a longer one. Uh, I forgot he sent it in my DM. So I'm going to skip that one for now. All right. Josh Height says any sand my builds with a focus on a kasumi finish in the cards are you familiar with kasumi finishes my friend i i hear the word out there um sure 
honestly don't know what it means. Is it a stone finish? Yeah, it's kind of a stone finish, or it's a really high polish finish. And I think moreover, it's in its it it's it's a reference to the aesthetic of the blade, which is kind of similar to bringing out the hamon in a way, okay. because what they're from what I understand, they're finishing with uh oh shoot, of course I'm gonna forget what this the little finger stone I can't remember what it's called right now um. I want to say like Neguri, or maybe that's sushi. I'm not sure. <laughs> Nikiri, <laughs> Nigiri. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, they should finish it with with some sushi. But uh, it's it's a type of Japanese stone. It's just a. It's usually just a. It's either in a powder or it's in like actual solid stone form. But it's usually a tiny little thing, and they just kind of scrub it around. And it's and it's a really fine polishing stone but it's from what i understand and it's the same kind of thing they use on uh japanese swords that helps bring out the pop that homone is that the stone is um low in ph and so it's it's mildly acidic and so it's as it's polishing it is also etching at the same time and so what it what the what the at least this is what i think i understand of the kasumi finish sorry if i totally screwed this up for everybody but um is that the Kasumi finish is basically the idea of pulling out the contrast between the core material and the cladding material, whether it's stainless or, or usually in especially Japanese tradition, it's either like a wrought iron or a mild steel. And just being able to visually see that difference as well as the slight decarb layer between the high carbon steel and the, and the uh, mild steel core or cladding and so you'll get just this the slightest little decarb cloud between the two of them and um and that also shows up if you do it properly and i think that's what everybody's really like excited about is figuring out a way to properly bring out that that little decarb layer between the cladding and the core material because i think realistically it's pretty straightforward and easy to see the contrast between the core and the cladding but getting Getting it, doing it right, so you can see that little decarb layer, I think is the the tricky thing for a lot of folks. So interesting. It, I'm gonna have to try this, but I don't know even where to start. So someone DM me a starter kit. <laughs> sure. I mean, if I was gonna do it, what someone, especially the uh, you know Japanophiles, um, would consider cheating, I would I would just kind of do it the same way as just kind of etching the blade. Just to bring out the uh, bring out the contrast between the cladding and the and the core material. But what I would do is I would probably take my little Nagura stone on my onto my whetstone, and I would create a little mud or a slurry, and then I would just like take a swipe of that with my fingertip and gently polish. I think the key to bringing out that kind of that decarb cloud is by using the gentlest abrasive you possibly can. And on, you know, on my, my whetstone, it's a 6,000 grit. Um, On the 6,000 grit side. So you're basically making a 6,000 grit mud with water and the Nagura stone breaking that down. And so you're polishing with 6,000 grit by, by hand, which is also lends itself to being gentler as well. So, um, that would probably be how I would do it. I've heard of people if you if you don't have obviously if you're at home 
you're not a knife maker, you don't have bottles of ferric laying around like I do or or will do. Um, you probably just heating up even some lemon juice. Um, and I wouldn't apply it directly, just pouring it on there. I would get like a paper towel damp, or, or sorry, get a table paper towel, get it, get some of that hot lemon juice, and just like wipe it onto the blade, and it'll start making, it'll start developing a patina, and then go back in there, and and it'll also simultaneously be etching it. Uh, go back in there with that polishing stone and clean that all back up, and that should that should help do the trick at least, uh, or instant coffee the whole instant coffee thing should probably help as well cuz instant coffee will etch over time um so yeah that's what i got is there Sweet. anything else you want to add you're going to you're going to go check that out no i'm useless right now i'm like i've heard of the word so sure yeah i'll uh, i'll do some reading later today thanks okay perfect all right this next one is from mr bob rankin He's a friend of the show. Uh, he says, what dimensions uh, would you normally use to do a flip billet? So I'm guessing he's referring to the t- uh, what's commonly referred to uh, the fairy flip, but um, is actually, I think it was, in modern times, it was pioneered by Steve Filchetti, which is an Australian maker. But he, realistically, even before that, I just, I've been learning recently that uh, ancient Celts from like 200 AD, um, 200, 300 AD were using tiled mosaics in their pattern welded swords. So anyways, he's asking what is the dimension of the billet before I, before you cut those tiles and do a mosaic. Um, so to be honest, Bob, uh, it depends on the size of the knife. Um, and so on and so forth. So I'll just use an example of like an eight inch chef's knife. Um, if I want there to basically be a tile for every inch of the blade, um, that means for an eight inch chef's knife, I would put eight tiles in that knife. Um, and then, or I would need eight pieces, but that's what the finished length is going to be. So I have to con- take into consideration um the expansion that's going to occur from the initial billet and then stretching it out into a blade. So you kind of got to do the backwards math. So if I want each tile to be about an inch um, wide in the finished blade, then that means where in its original compressed form, I probably only want that tile to be maybe a quarter of an inch or three eighths of an inch. I usually shoot for around three eighths of an inch just for a margin of error. Um, just, just in case, uh, yeah, just in case. So I usually go three eighths of an inch by, like I said before, uh, an inch and a half tall, so that um, you know I already have that heel height, like I spoke about before. And then when it comes to how wide I want that tile to be, um, it's usually around seven eighths of an inch, and so that should build up and give me a solid, you know, three uh, three cubic inches or so. Um, I don't, I can't do the the math off the top of my head, but, um, yeah, so eight tiles at three eighths of an inch thick by inch and a half tall by seven eighths or three quarters. Yeah. Probably ideally seven eighths of an inch wide you stack. I don't, I don't do kind of like the angle tiles. I do butt welds. Um, and so 
then I just kind of set it up like a normal like billet restack, and I just treat it the same way um, for the most part. I, I do wrap all the joints in TIG weld, just a very gentle TIG weld. Um, so I'm not trying to necessarily penetrate super deep. I just want the pieces to hold together and to keep oxygen from getting in between the layers uh, or between the, each individual piece. I put it in the forge, let it soak. I put it under my press. I give it probably a, a quarter of an inch squish at whatever height it is and from the, whatever original starting height it was. And then I put it back in the forge and then I let it soak probably for at least a good solid five, five or so minutes before I go back and do it again, another quarter inch squish. And so I do two or three rounds of that before I start gently working against those welds and reforming my billet until it's to that original uh, starting billet shape or size that we had first talked about answering Lynn Valley Forge's question, when which you... is, you know, the three quarter inches by inch and a half tall by whatever length it ends up being. Go ahead. What's up? Sorry to interrupt. When you oh, start gently working against those welds, what do you mean by gentle? Are you going even less than a quarter of an inch squish? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm only doing maybe a sixteenth of an inch. Okay. I'm very gently massaging. And I'm making sure I'm working hot, like really hot. And what I mean is, I guess more so what I mean is making sure I'm not working cold. So I start hot like my normal welding temp, but I don't work it for very long. I only work maybe one side and then I put it back in the forge because anytime you start working against those welds, um, if it's going to fail anywhere, it's going to fail at those weld joints. And so the goal is to continue to kind of encourage that welding bond action by by not putting too much stress on them and, and by working it hot, you're reducing the amount of stress you're putting into those welds as you work against them. Um, and, and at some point you can start being less gentle with those. Yeah. It's usually, um, yeah, even, even after I got, get it down to, you know, kind of, so massaging it into that uh, initial billet size that we talked about at the beginning. Um, that's usually that usually takes uh probably an additional six heats or so and by that time you know you kind of get you're getting a better feel for how well things are stuck together and but even still you know the the first thing that's a real big tell as to how well everything's welded together is i do kind of a, an offset die configuration on my press so i'll put a narrow die on top with a wider die on the bottom. And that's how I drive material down to upset for my bolster and what will become the bolster and tang material. And that is probably one of the most stressful things you can do the material. Um, because you're taking it from, you know, an inch and a half or so to now about one inch or seven eighths, depending on how, how thick, or I guess, yeah, how thick you want your bolster to be from spine to kind of like the 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 choil side mm -hmm. and so that's a, that's probably at least three quarter or sorry uh what is that that's about half an inch to five eighths of an inch reduction in that dimension and if it's going to fail that's where it's going to fail and you'll know 
whether or not your stuff is stuck together. And you can do that in multiple heats if you want to be extra careful, which I have definitely done before in the past um, with kind of more finicky or delicate materials. And so instead of doing, you know, all of it in once, you can do like an eighth of an inch, put it back in the heat, eighth of an inch, put it back in the heat and keep going back and forth until you got it. And those extra heats aren't going to be bad for the steel. It's just going to encourage those weld bonds that you've been establishing to strengthen even more. Um, you know, a lot of people are concerned about, you know, burning, burning all the carbon out of their blades. But the reality is the, the carbon, while it does leach out of the material as you forge it, it's not moving that fast. And so you're not going to burn the material out of your blade, um, by taking your sweet time. Um, and then when I start re even reducing and forging the blade down and re kind of like reducing the thickness and the blade material from what is the bolster material, I still kind of very gently massage it. And it's at that point too, that will start informing you as to how well your tiles are stuck together. And at that point you can start maybe getting a little bit more aggressive. And because it's a narrower cross section, it's going to lose heat a lot quicker. That will also help tell you whether or not, <laughs> you know, your stuff is stuck. But as long as by that point is as long as you've done been diligent about just kind of being gentle and massaging everything in the place, it should it should have stuck pretty well. And at that point, you should be able to forge it very similarly to like mono steel. Uh, um, and what one question, one question. Yeah. I'm just going to keep interrupting Mariko. Yeah, no, it's great. Um, what if your stuff doesn't stick? <laughs> <laughs> then you say shit i fucked up um no so i have had um billets come apart just the slightest little bit in the corners and at that point before i give up on it i'll say you know i'll put it back in the forge immediately after notice once i notice it uh, i have some borax on hand i use an anhydrous borax so this is you know 20 it's different from 20 mule mule in the way that any as weird as it sounds any moisture that's in the 20 mule has been evaporated out and so this is without which is without moisture or without water which is what anhydrous means so um so it doesn't just start bubbling up and floating all over the place so anyways i i put a pinch of that on wherever the crack is starting to show and put it back in the forge, let it soak. I give it, you know, a good solid two, three minutes to hang out and and get hot and get ready to set. And then I pull it out and I use a ball peen. I've started using a ball peen to close things up because of that focused force and how it kind of helps smush and and kind of mush material together and spread it around. I've I've had you know, I had one blade, I think as I was forging the blade out, I had cracks open up uh, several times. And each time, I just tried to keep a level head, put it back in the heat, put pull it out really quick to put a little, you know, sp sprinkle a little flux on there, put it back in the heat, give it a couple minutes to come up to a good welding temperature, pull it back out and set that weld with the ball peen and, you know... I, I ended up with a solid blade at the end of all the forging and using the ball peen to help kind of close things up really makes a huge difference. Now, if it's gotten to a really big fissure, then 
you might be in a tougher spot. Um, and that's either because you, you didn't notice it starting to open and now it's opened even wider or, um, or you were possibly forging it too aggressively and it just opened up all at once. Um, so the idea it, for me, even still, I'm as I'm forging and, and moving the material around, I'm constantly looking at the billet to see if there's anywhere where the welds are starting to come apart and fail. If it's anywhere, it's you, it's always going to be at the edges, uh, edge of the spine, and especially in the corners uh, of that initial billet. That makes sense. Yeah, that know. makes sense. I feel like I'm talking a lot right no, now. No, it's awesome. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm... This is exactly why I don't do a lot of Damascus because it makes me nervous as hell. All these right. cracks and fissures and yeah, I hate borax in the forge. I just sure I do too. It. Yeah, I uh, you know, and it is scary. But the reality, um, you know, for anybody and everything, you know, until you try it, you're just never gonna know, right. and you're never gonna. And it, that's the first step to building up that confidence and that knowledge. Is you know, you just gotta try it. Um, so. Thanks, Bob, for uh, making me talk for so long. Let's see if we can find a standby. <laughs> All right, here we go. Here's a good one. Uh, this is from Kui Forgeworks. He says, what percentage would you recommend for the core steel in your standby layup? What percentage? 33.3 repeating percent. Just one third. Perfect. I just use... An even one third. An even one third. Quarter, quarter, quarter. So Love quarter it. inch, quarter inch, quarter inch. And yeah. and that's for if you are forging or stock removal, either way you use perfect one thirds. That's what I always start with. Cause that's the thickest I can really buy the, the stainless cladding in. And then, sure. yeah. And sometimes I'll use a thinner core just because I alpha has, you know, 0.2 inch stock instead of 0.25 inch stock or whatever. Sure. So, yeah. um, and all that you can kind of figure out, you know, okay, the core's a little smaller, so maybe leave it thicker. Um I see. I've been trying to get into the integral sandmai, but I think I've just figured out this week that it's not gonna happen until I find thicker material to start with, because I need I need more room to squish. Uh, right, it's for reduction. Right. You're starting thick and then you're reducing it down. Right. And it, I've had one third success rate with that, so <laughs> you know, <laughs> sure, it's learning, but learning it's, so it's much fun. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, where can you get thick stainless material? Uh, you know, what if you got like who is it? I think it's online metals sells all kinds of stainless stuff right. in larger stock. Um, and I don't know what, if they have like a minimum purchase volume, but that might be a place where you could start where it's, it might even be way oversized, but then you can reduce it down by through forging. Right. Um, to create that cladding. But again, I don't know what they have and I don't know what you use. So, well, um, I'll, I'll give that a look. Sure. Uh, okay. That was good. That was good for you. All right, this Sweet. one, next one's from Matthew Lee 67. He says, in low-layer Damascus, what makes the the borders turn out clean and crisp or so, versus being sort of fuzzy? Have you ever noticed that in any of your Damascus? I know I've seen it in mine. Right. 
and so basically what Matt's asking, so sometimes what happens in Damascus is, uh, you know, you, you forge a blade out and then, um, you go to etch it and the boundaries, especially in the low layer, um, they're either, sometimes they're either super sharp or they have, they look like they're like these micro tears all along the boundary. They're not actually torn. It's just, that's just the look. Um, and in my experience, I think, you know, what, when that happens for me, that tells me that I've, I've let my blade soak too long at high temperatures and things start getting a little hazy between the weld boundaries and between the two materials in general. And I just, I find that I, I don't get as clean and sharp edges between the colors between the you know the different pieces as i would like ideally but at a certain point that's unavoidable just because of the nature of of low layer stuff um is that you know you just you're you're taking what's already only a few layers and then stretching it out that's kind of what's going to happen in anyways but um i don't is know it, have you noticed go ahead i have noticed it and i'm curious does it pertain only to low layer just because it's essentially magnified and you just don't notice it with higher layer or what, what yeah. do you think? I mean, I've talked to other makers uh, about this and from what I understand, if, if material materials are allowed to soak for a long period of time at extremely high temperatures, especially like at welding temperatures, um, some funky stuff starts to happen and that, like alloys start coming out of solution uh or even passing back and forth which might not necessarily be a good thing and so i i have ex i i i i haven't scientifically gone through and figured out the difference between you know ha allowing a blade to sit at extremely high temperatures so say like around 2000 degrees for long periods of time versus not and um you know, once uh, the one thing I would advise is if you don't need it to sit up at welding temperatures, you don't need then don't. Especially like once the material is solid, you don't really need it up at welding temperatures anymore, which is around 2000, 2100 degrees. You know, you can start forging maybe closer to around like or, or yeah, like around 1900 degrees, which is essentially like a bright orange, but not not so bright that it looks like it's like got these glowing edges and stuff like that um and so yeah i i would try to keep the once you feel like your materials solidly stuck forge at kind of lower temperatures and lower again just means not welding temperatures <laughs> uh, and also keep it from soaking for too long at high temperatures uh once it's solidly stuck together um, because if you're not trying to stick it, um, then you don't need it up that high, at least not for super long periods of time. Um, I find myself getting distracted, if especially if I'm trying to be too efficient in the shop. I'll, I'll go and grind on something while some, while blades in the forge coming up the temperature, and then I'll get like sucked in to whatever I'm doing, and I'm like, oh crap, I have a knife in the forge, <laughs> and I go back, and you know it's not shooting sparks and melting and falling apart, but um i it's probably not necessarily the greatest thing for for it to do that because 
uh, yeah, it's just not good. That's what I got. What do you got? Anything else to add? Gosh, I mean, that sounds great. I always just thought, you know, I did it wrong. I thought maybe I needed to grind thinner. I thought it was the decarb or something. Um, sure. But it seems like there's always a, a little bit of uh, etch that I'm not happy with every time I make some Damascus. So I'm sure. not the person to ask. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I would. Again, it part of it, especially in low layer stuff, it is just kind of part of the nature of low layer. Um, but it is something that can happen in finer, uh, I guess, line density, uh, Damascus patterns. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do it as it occurs as a result of spending too much time at super high temperatures. Um, real quick before we move on, you were just talking about grinding. Uh, if you're going to do any grinding and you want to, you really want to take your knife making to the next level, uh, you're done draw filing and you really want to kind of be more efficient with your work and your time. And you're trying not to just do the one by 30, a two by 72 inch grinder is a solid go-to for any of the top makers, uh, any maker really, who's trying to take their knife making seriously. And our new sponsor, Broadback Grinders. Um, they're, uh, a company out of the Northeast and they, they're, the machines are beautifully engineered, really, uh, really intuitive. And I think, you know, they make sense, especially for knife makers. I think, you know, they're not necessarily just designed for knife makers. I, I think a lot of blacksmiths use them as well, but they are very well designed and they also feature a, uh, they they pivot so that you can work them not only horizontally, but they have a pivot feature so you can lay it down and work work it vertic or sorry, <laughs> not only use it vertically but then turn it down to use it horizontally, um, which is a great feature. They also have all kinds of tool arms. They have a really cool small wheel attachment that they use to really help create a uh, a tight corner that you can get into little little and tight places with, hmm. um. And something that's really cool that I think uh, is very, um, I don't know, admirable of a company to do is, you know, they're not trying to squeeze you for every penny you got. Um, they they have, their their grinders start at $999.99, um, which <laughs> sounds like a, uh, almost sounds like a, like a furniture commercial. But <laughs> what's, what's great about that is, you know, that's just under $1,000, right? It's hard to find a really well-made machine for less than a thousand dollars, and the this this setup is the bolt-together system. So you, what they're doing is, you bolt. They ship everything to you. You you can. Oops, I just smacked my microphone. <laughs> you bolt it together yourself, um, and that saves on just the labor costs. And if if you're in a position to get a hold of a grinder like this, you probably have the tools to do uh, the bolt together job. And while it does not come, so that setup comes without a motor, this gives you a chance to source your own motor, or maybe you already have a motor um, that you can use with the machine. And so that that's a great way to get started using a two by 72 without spending a ton of money. Um, and realistically, like you can buy a, a two four uh, like a two twenty or a one ten motors you can get really nice ones for only a couple hundred bucks, um, 
a brand new. I mean, you can find refurbished ones for even less. Um, and refurbished motors work just fine. Um, especially if they're done by a professional, of course. Um, but nonetheless, Broadbeck, we're looking forward to working with them as our new sponsor. Um, unfortunately, at, at recording right now, I don't know what exactly uh, our deals, you know, discounts that we got going with, the, with them are. But they're super solid. Go check them out on Instagram, uh, Broadback Ironworks, I believe. And um, yeah, get yourself into a, a new grinder and take your knife making to the next level. All right, this next question is a Samai one. Thank goodness. Tired of hearing myself talk. <laughs> uh, this one's from uh, Davey Alex. He says, can you tell us a little bit about copper-clad Samai? It's just so dang hard to do. Hmm. All right. Guess it's more copper talk. I guess we gotta go try this before we can really talk about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Again, as I said before, I think my my take on doing copper clad is that you would you would need some sort of nickel shim in between the copper and your core steel, um, to get it to stick, and then. And then also you don't want to obviously work at too high of a temperature. We established that the melting point of copper is 19 and that's probably full melted is at 1984. So that actually means that before you reach that, it's, it's like at a slushy state, which is not right. ideal either, which is why you want, would want to keep it at a lower temperature, probably around 1750. Maybe I have no idea. So <laughs> talk to somebody with more experience, but, um, and then you you don't once you get it put together you don't really want to do a lot of forging you you'd want to do stock removal. All right, let's see. This one is from cool. I'm gonna screw this one up. Uh, Gum Gumbiner Custom Knives. He says, "Hey man, uh, do you ensure good core alignment when only forging by hand with an am- anvil and hammer? Or I guess hammer and anvil." So he's talking about uh, how do you, I think more basically he's asking, you know, how do you keep the the core well aligned? And I think you kind of touched on that before. Right. Do you mind sharing that again? Yeah. I mean, I'm always paying attention to forging evenly, whether or not I'm using the press or I just have a tire hammer. Um, Cold forging has always yielded better results with core alignment for me. That being said, it's not necessary to get good core alignment. Um, I'm thankful to have a, a uh, rolling mill in my shop, and that's nice. That's pretty helpful, as you can imagine, but it's also sure. it's not necessary. Um, you can get it with you can definitely get it with your hammer and anvil. And anyone that's out there that wants to make sand mai does not need any of this high-powered equipment. Um, I've made plenty of it with with no power tools. Um, but yeah, getting your core aligned is going to be a challenge. Um, just pay attention to what, what results you get and sort of think of your process along the way. Um, right. Just, you know, be observant of your work. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's answering the question. Um, right. No, I think that's cool. good. I think yeah. when I first started when I tried forging my first sand mai, um, I could not think 
of how because i i had no experience doing it and again i i don't i I never want to try bugging anybody without making a solid effort myself so i was like all right how am i going to approach this because at at first all i could think is like you know what do i do forge some and then etch it and tech and check where the core is and then forge some more and check it and check and see where the edge where the core is and um one kind of cheat i came up with and i don't know if i'm sure somebody else has done this before i I can't be the only person that's ever done this um was to you know get the material stuck and reduced down to a certain point and i was doing uh an integral sand mine so I was reducing from thick material down to uh, narrow, narrower, like from, you know, like three quarters thick down to a quarter of an inch. Uh, so three times reduction. And so once I got it down to that thickness, I then ground the edge or I let the blade cool, ground the edge, looked at the edge. And then what I did was I, I did, I ground, I started grinding a bevel down to just right down to the edge of that core material just to remove some of the material that was at the edge, uh, some of the cladding material that was at the edge to reduce the amount of material at the edge there. So that uh, kind of the, like the core to cladding ratio to just ensure that I had actual core material at the edge of the blade. Um, Because my concern again, you know, this was early on. I, I I was still pretty fresh to forging hand hand forging, and so, um, that's that's the best thing I could do to ensure that the core would stay aligned. It did a pretty good job. It wasn't perfect, and I think, uh, I think part of that is just my lack of skill in forging. But two, if I were to do it again, uh, that initial one I did was a flat grind, but. Now that I have a, a hollow grinding wheel, like a large hollow grinding wheel, I would probably do a large hollow to remove material, just to remove to reduce that ratio even further up the blade, at least you know like a half an inch or something like that. Um, just because again, like the the last thing, it it would be unfortunate, especially if you're using unhardenable material as the cladding for there for there to be cladding at the edge. That's like the worst thing. Um, that could happen basically because then you have soft material at the cutting edge of your knife, which is basically no good, right? Not a um, knife. Yeah, not a knife. That's a shiv, a um, butter knife. <laughs> well, I guess one thing that I feel the need to say, sure, only because it feels like it goes without saying. Uh, so maybe someone has this question out there: is just definitely don't forge your send my. I won't hurt you if you do this, but. It just might make things more complicated. Don't forge it on edge. Um, mm. We talk about forging sand mai, but I'm always sort of cutting out a pre-forged shape and just forging on the bevel um, mm. or or the flats, you know. Sure. Because um, I definitely didn't always do that. And thinking back to that core alignment issue, um, that didn't help matters. So no. Well, and I think. That's what surprised me the most is I did, I did do some forging on the edge and you know, before that everything was looking great. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to tune it up a little bit here. And I, you know, just clean it up around the outside of the perimeter of the knife and everything. And I did some forging on the edge and then it like totally screwed it up. 
And I was like, what happened? No! <laughs> I thought I did such a good job. But I think it was forging on the edge. And I think, I, I'm glad that you did say that because I don't think it goes without saying um, realistically. I didn't know that until after I made that mistake actually a couple times. Because um, I didn't identify it really until like the second time I had done a sand mine. I was like, oh man, I don't think I should be forging on the edge. <laughs> if right. I need to change, fix anything out there, I should probably grind it. Right. Um, fix it with a grinder. So, <laughs> is that the new so, hashtag? Yeah. No, I, I, what is it? The DeRosiers. Actually, Adam right. and Haley DeRosiers, they have that. Fix it with a hammer. Uh, oh, yeah. Fix it with a hammer. Yeah. The, yeah. Broadback. There you go. Fix it with a grinder. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this next one is from Natural State Forges. Uh, he says, or they say, are there any steels that don't play nice in sand mine construction? Probably. Is all, is all you. <laughs> Probably is all I can really say. Sure. Um, I've definitely had the mysterious core cracking in half, but that's when I was trying to... Oh, like the zipper crack? Yeah, it was awful. And it was the first sand Maya I made in my new shop, and I was like, "Oh, I've, I've failed someone somewhere, and now I'm fucked." Um, <laughs> but that was—I equate that to just the cryogenic that I was trying. But oh, sure, yeah. Um, I haven't, you know, I know there's probably steels out there that don't play nicely together. Like nothing wants to stick to stainless, but you can ease it into doing so. Um, sure, yeah. But I don't know off the top of my head any that are like, don't try this. Right. Um, I use a lot of 52100, Crew Forge V, ADCR V2, and then 10 series. So they're all oh, wow. fairly standard steels, I guess. And the claddings yeah. I use are 416 stainless, 304 stainless, uh, wrought iron, and then whatever bourbon barrel straps are made out of. So. All those seem to play fairly well with each other. Sure. Um, well, and realistically, there are kind of there's there's a at least for formulas of what ones stick together. I feel like there's at, at this point at least there's some standard information or knowledge of what sticks and what's not going to stick. And I think if you've never done this, definitely start out just doing what is proven to work just like what will just said i mean that's that's a huge time saver like i would never you know there's all kinds of grades of um stainless out there i would never know what necessarily to grab for and i would have to talk and reach out to somebody like will who has that knowledge and information he just shared it with everybody so all fifty thousand of you listening right now just do what will said just try that if you need help <laughs> finding it let me know um Go to your local machine shop. There's a modification these metal shops do around the country to semi-truck bumpers um, mm. or some part where they're installing this extra taillight that's needed um, maybe to stay up to code or something. And they cut out this section that's like the perfect starting point for uh, a billet. And it's 304 stainless, and they usually just give them to you by the bucketful. Um, so there you oh, go. Wow. Free stainless. Go check it out. That's awesome. Yeah. It's not as pretty as 416. You don't get the cloudy effect for sure. some scientific like, reason. But 
that, that cloudy effect is nice. It is nice. So, but can't argue with the price. Sure. Um, let's see. All right. This next one is from Connor McCrillis. It says, can you etch anything, uh, etch with anything besides ferric chloride? And you touched on that earlier, right? Lemon juice, mustard, um, coffee, right? Coffee. You're the yeah. coffee guy. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, realistically, there are lots of acids out there that you can etch with. Uh, it just depends on what the desired result is that you're looking for. Um, you know, coffee definitely does it. It's considerably slower. If you wanted to get the same kind of etching action or depth that you would get with ferric, it would take two or three days versus, you know, 20 or 30 minutes in ferric. Um, I'm not quite sure why this person's asking this question because, you know, ferric is a pretty solid standard. Um, but, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. And again, it depends on the material you're trying to etch. So if you're doing stainless Damascus, you know, you might want to etch actually in um, muriatic, act, uh, like warm muriatic in a well-ventilated space or outside. Uh, but warm muriatic will get you your depth. And then if you want to go for contrast, then maybe do a, a mix of 50-50 uh, mix of ferric and white distilled vinegar. Um, if you're going for contrast, coffee is obviously great. Um, if you're going for hamon, again, like like you were just mentioning, lemon juice will do the job. Ferric also does the job. Sometimes people use vinegar. Um, you know, it's just there's all kinds of stuff out there. But realistically, like especially a lot of the folks that are listening are newer. You know, there's there's a lot of proven stuff that there's no need to try to uh, kind of innovate on or try to advance on you know that just works and there's a reason that basically everybody uses ferric is because it just works it works can I, can I chime in on this yeah let's hear it you know while maybe you don't want to like mail order ferric right now just try leaving your blade unetched and let your use of it cut cut you know sure. in a year you'll have a patina and you'll see the contrast in the steels and it will be you know, dependent on your use and care of the blade. Um, yeah. And it's all just a finish anyways, even, you know, the, the most beautiful coffee finish after a year of hard use is going to equalize to what it wants to be. Right. Um, at least that's the experience with the few Damascus and sand my knives in my kitchen. Um, right. So, you know, you still get this beautiful contrast with time. So. Absolutely. It's just not as beautiful and it's not as immediate, but well, it, it, sure. And it's not as like popping contrast and all that. Uh, I actually built a knife a few years back um, where I did an etch and then I polished it all away, uh, polished all the contrast away. And so initially, if you looked at it from a distance, it just looked like a mono steel knife. If you looked really close, you could see a pattern. And the idea was that over time and use with that knife, it would develop a patina and that the pattern would reveal itself more and more over time and use. Um, I haven't Dude. done a, I haven't done one like that in a long time. Have you seen that knife uh, since then? I haven't, actually. I wonder how it's going. 
Yeah, I do. I do too. Rumor has it it, relong, it belongs to uh, Salt Bay. <laughs> okay, that's what I was told. So I've never seen him using it, and uh, I don't know if I necessarily need to see him using. It. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. This next question is from Fiery Ice Forge. He says. Uh, oh man, I'm stoked to hear this recording. What are some basic patterns and the general concepts? Okay. Uh, I don't know what he means by concepts, but uh, Damascus patterns. What are some, what do you think are some solid basic patterns to start with making Damascus? Me? I'm a yeah. non Damascus guy. I am drawn to Feather. Um, sure. It, I've always just been attracted to it every time I see it. So that's like. If I'm not doing a random, or as Jason Knight calls it, a thumbprint pattern, then <laughs> then I'm trying to do a, some kind of feather pattern. Uh, sure. But if you're going to go through that effort, then there's probably a bunch of patterns you could achieve. I mean, a twist is always really nice. Sure. Pretty simple. Um, yeah. What do you think, Mareko? You're you're the Damascus guru. Yeah. All right. So uh, when it comes to Damascus, basic Damascus patterns, um, you know, I even as simple and basic as a random pattern, um, which I co- commonly refer to as a topography pattern, because it kind of looks like, you know, the topography a, a topographical map. Um, but I, I still love it. There's all kinds of I, I I just I don't know I don't know what it is about it I always there's always something to find kind of in the randomness of all the patterning on the surface of those blades, um, so I always love uh, random as a solid starting uh, pattern. Another good one, <clears throat> excuse me, is uh, is a twist. Twist is cool. Um, something I've been seeing more that I really like though is like a super lazy twist like so lazy that it's it's uh you know imagine only doing a half twist at one end of the bar right so what it looks like is it looks like water flowing and pouring out of kind of like the bolster area down into the blade and then that's it and then it's gone and it washes away cool yeah it's super cool so a super lazy twist is a another fun one for kind of like a dramatic and not commonly seen twist pattern or aesthetic uh actually i bet that would look really cool on cladded on either side of a sandmai a super lazy twist so on both sides um it does that kind of lazy flowing into the blade um trying to think what else what else is basic stuff i think i mean realistically those are kind of like the most basic starting points for a lot of people for making damascus and those are the most you know you learn a lot just in those just in those two about how to get material to stick how to move the material i mean that's the biggest part and the hardest part for a lot of folks it's just getting a sense for how the material moves for um for basic concepts, can you explain that in under thirty seconds? Basic concepts. <laughs> uh, get it, your steel in a forge that is really hot, and you know I think welding temperatures wise, ideally you want your steel to be able to get up to around twenty two hundred degrees. Um, 
if you need to use flux, use flux. Um, but I think realistically, uh, in my experience, you don't really have to, um, which is kind of scary for some folks, especially if they've done a lot of flux welding. Um, but the real deal is get your forge running rich. So that means um, you're you're pouring so much fuel into the forge as it's as it's burning, it has to actually escape to uh, be exposed to more enough oxygen to properly burn. And so you see a, a large, like a, a flame coming out of the front of the forge. Anytime you see that, that's an uh, it's an over carbureted flame or a or what's commonly referred to as a reduced atmosphere forge. So you're reducing the oxygen that's actually in the forge and running it rich, uh, kind of kind of like running it with the choke on a little bit. And, and so that also helps reduce the oxygen. The oxygen is kind of your enemy, quote-unquote, in making Damascus because it forms forge scale. Um, but ultimately, that's not even necessarily the biggest issue the biggest issue is just getting from your hot forge after it's not so so sorry back up a little bit once your steel has come up to temperature you then want to let it soak for a good bit of time a surprising bit of time uh which would be you know at least five minutes at the minimum but maybe closer to like 10 minutes uh i refer to it as a couple songs <laughs> often it's a good uh, way to when do i talk it. to people it's just you know listen to a couple songs especially if you don't want to just sit there the whole time um if you have some music playing play a couple songs and then when that second song's over go back to the steel and that's uh, a couple songs at temperature at at temp once it's gotten to temperature yeah sorry not from just when you put it in cuz sometimes it could take up to 15 minutes just to come up to temperature right depending on your your forge and how it's constructed uh so once it's had that long soak uh, then you, as quickly as possible, get it under your press or your power hammer, but not frantically. Just do it like you know, like you st- like a standard movement. You know, you don't want to be crazy and out of control. Set that weld. You don't want to get. You don't have to get too crazy drawing it out. Really, at this point, you just want to get the steel actually in physical contact at an atomic level, so that those pieces can start creating welding bonds and start passing atoms and back and forth and creating that diffusion welded bond that you want. And so I usually, after I do that, I put it back in the forge. I let it soak again for a long time, like another couple songs, 10 minutes or so. Um, and put it, pull it out and I do it again. And, and each time I'm looking probably for uh, about a half inch reduction um, or so. Yeah, probably about a half inch reduction um, just to get good movement all the way through the billet, especially when it comes to using a press. It's sometimes can be easy to not necessarily transfer the force all the way through a tall billet um, uh, without a decent amount of reduction, which is, like I said, about half an inch at least. Um, So I'll do that at least three rounds before I start even trying to touch up the edges. I'm just working the faces at this point. And at the third round, I very gently, like I was talking about before, massage the edges. So maybe a sixteenth or an eighth at the mo- at the most reduction. But then I always finish on the faces. And then at the fourth round, I start going a little bit uh, more aggressive. I'm not letting it soak for as long anymore. I'm letting it, you know, just letting it come back up to temperature. Uh, so maybe another, 
you know, two, three, two, two, three to five minutes, something like that, whatever it takes. Um, and then I just kind of work it standard. So right. can we back up to the flux thing? Yes. I gather you don't use flux. Um, <clears throat> it's a question I was just getting recently and I just feel like I came to this conclusion that using flux gave me a false sense of security. And I've gotten some of the worst results when I use Flux. Uh, sure. Just because you can't see what's what's actually going on. Um, so I'm of the no Flux camp myself. Don't use your Flux. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, so what Flux can do, uh, what I've actually heard people of people doing is setting that initial weld and then putting Flux um, on the on their steel and so the idea is that you're kind of coating the steel in flux and reducing the surface exposure to oxygen but at the same time you're also putting a bunch of flux in your forge which makes a big mess and deteriorates your forge um at a at a faster rate than is necessary um the way you know i don't know the exact scientific way of explaining how what's called dry welding or flux or fluxless welding works but essentially it's diffusion bonded welds um this is the same kind of system that's used for like mokume or something like that it's um so it's the surfaces being in such close proximity or actually in close physical contact that like i said at an atomic level that they start passing atoms back and forth um at a, but even in your initial billet before you do any squish those pieces are close enough and as that carbon um starts moving around and does make its way to the surface in between your pieces um of your initial billet it's not necessarily too much of a concern because any oxygen that has initially gotten in there and has possibly forged uh, or developed some sort of forge scale on the surface that carbon as it reaches the surface it consumes oxygen and then off gases and the only way the only place it has to go is out out to the edges of your billet and so it creates a positive pressure so to a point to where oxygen can no longer get in between those pieces and so all that's happening in there is 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 just a kind of iron uh that's kind of left and or carbon again a carbon creating this positive pressure and 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 leaching out of your steel out to the edges and um and that's but it takes time to do that because like i said carbon doesn't actually move necessarily that fast so you got to give it time to do its thing and kind of auto clean between the layers and once you've done that and you go set your initial weld it should be nice and clean in there without any forge scale uh captured or trapped in there now the the potential issue of using flux before your billets had a chance to do that is that that flux could get trapped in there and it's not going to get uh necessarily squeezed out it, it very easily gets trapped in there um What's his name? Oh my gosh, the master smith from Michigan, super smart guy, does all the heat treat stuff. I can't think of his name right now. This is the worst. 
Anyways, good story. He did a he did a uh, kind of a, a scientific study and did some micrographs. Um, he is uh, kind of a scientist in, in, of sorts, and um, and he he did a kind of a comparison of dry welds versus flux welds, and he found that you know there was flux getting captured in between the layers, and ultimately both work, and ultimately you know that the the tiny little bit of flux that sometimes at, at best case scenario that little bit of flux that might get in there isn't necessarily the end of the world for the overall compositional strength of your blade but it doesn't necessarily help and and when it comes to uh finishing your blade it could those little inclusions can reveal themselves as little pores or voids and impurities in your surface of your steel. Um, so that's that's another benefit of flux, fluxless welding is that you don't get that kind of stuff. Um, so, nice. so much for staying basic. <laughs> yeah, that was 30 seconds. It's totally 30 seconds. Uh, let's see. We've been going for quite a long time. We're about two hours and 16 minutes into this. I'm trying to scroll through real quick to see, um, so any other solid questions, sand my questions, especially. All right. We got one here from yes. This is Patrick. He says, would it be possible to do a sand my in, in a Coke forge? And since you have your, uh, historical forging background, that's a perfect question for you, I think. Yeah, and a coke forge, meaning the charcoal of coal, right? Yes. Yeah. So we're all on the same page. I don't see why that couldn't happen. Um, yeah, that can work. I'll say all it right. with confidence. Uh, my Perfect. friend Addison in Charleston works with coal and coke and does sandmai, So. Oh, nice. Yeah. Is he so, on Instagram? Uh, yeah, he is. Let me find him. Uh, I forget his name. Her. That is per, for yes. This is Patrick. That would probably be the perfect person to ask if they're willing to share. Uh, if not, glean as much wisdom as you can from his Instagram. What's his Instagram? I'm looking it up. Del- okay. I know it's Delisle. Del- oh, D E underscore Lyle, which is L I S L E underscore Iron. Delisle Iron. Iron. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So throw some underscores in it. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. We'll we'll take one last one from our friend of the, of the show, Mr. Josh Scott Knives. He says, uh, thoughts on forge scale slash texture left on Sanmai or Damascus blade. Love it or hate it? I love it on Sanmai. I'd like to try it on Damascus, but I just... I've had such shitty results by not grinding enough off of Damascus that I'm not really excited about trying it. Uh, sure. what, are you, what are your thoughts? I think it's great. I, I love kind of like a brute to forge aesthetic, especially when it was actually forged. Um, I, I Sometimes I, I'm cool with kind of like forged texturing. Uh, actually, most most forged texturing I'm fine with, actually. I, I what I don't like is when somebody's doing forged texturing, but they're not actually forging the blade, but they right. call it a forged blade. Uh, that's frustrating because mm-hmm. 
it's a lot of work to forge a blade. Right. <laughs> and so to just texture it and say that you forged it is not the same thing. Um, but when when it comes to the forge scale, I think I, I like the rough look, but the if it's a, especially a cooking knife, um, if you have residual scale on the on the blade and somebody's using it, there there is a chance that somewhere down the road, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe a couple of years, that scale comes off into their food. Um, that's going to be an unpleasant experience for whoever that person is. Um, you know, do you do you wire brush your sandmai if you're doing like a brute to forge? Or even just any yeah. of your knives. If you don't I haven't found forge. a good wire brush or wire wheel that I love, but the um, the Scotch Brite belts do pretty. I mean, that eats up your Scotch Brite belt, which is sure. not cheap. Um, but that gets all the scale off and leaves really just the the forged texture on there. So yeah, and I feel like it's a up near the spine. It's a pretty sort of benign. Uh, sure. as far as use is concerned, it's a benign finish, but I, I do run up against, I don't know, one in eight, one in 10 people that don't want that anywhere near their knife. And I totally get it too. So, right. Um, and learning how to control that, you know, from the start is, is, has been key in getting knives out the door that people want to use. So absolutely. Yeah, and that's totally the goal. Um I found recently that and I think I mentioned it before on the podcast, but I'll say it again. I've been using phosphoric acid, which you can easily source at your local Home Depot or even Lowe's or even just like Ace Hardware or whatever. Um a lot of hardware stores use it or keep it on hand because it's used in uh kind of like cleaning up rust and and concrete in preparation especially concrete in preparation for staining or or doing any kind of finish work on concrete excuse me but it is phenomenal at um eating the forge scale and uh i do it cool you can do it warm and it'll speed it up but you'll want to make sure you're in a well ventilated place because it puts off some nasty fumes uh but i do it cold and i just time it so that i'm leaving the knife in the container overnight and it's cold and it just does its thing overnight and the next morning when i pull it out i dunk it immediately in my baking soda water kind of neutralizing solution bucket as a five gallon bucket i need i keep near all my acids and um and then just with a super basic i think you can get them at harbor freight for like a dollar 29 uh wire brush it just scrubs away like you're like you're brushing your teeth kind of hopefully you don't have that kind of stuff growing on your teeth but i might need um, to check it out um phosphoric acid yeah phosphoric acid sweet and is and it I, sold I as phosphoric acid or is it sold under yeah. another name nope that's what it says right on there i think uh the brand i've i've got that i've purchased before is the i think it k-l-e-e-n brand okay. yeah um i don't know i can't remember it. off the top of it but yeah phosphoric acid and it usually comes like in a one gallon jug it's blue uh i think i've actually seen some that's green i don't know what the difference is if there is any difference um 
but I, I, I just, I don't dilute it at all. I just poured it into a, a suitable container. Uh, you know, you can use PVC tube or whatever you got on hand. Um, just don't, don't let anybody confuse it for Kool-Aid. <laughs> but, so keep it in the shop. And, uh, but yeah, it's, it's amazing. I actually think that you could scrub it away with a toothbrush if you had to do it that way, or like a, like a hard bristle scrubber. I think you could, it just brushes right away, but I just happen to have, you know, one of those cheap wire brushes and it, it cleans everything off. And if you're concerned about, you know, all, all of a sudden, like it, your blade comes out super clean. So if you want to darken it back up, you put it back into ferric, put it back into uh, coffee or something like that to bring back some of that dark look, if that's what you want for, for some of the aesthetic of the, of the knife. But, um, yeah, I think whatever you can do to try to remove as much of the forge scale, especially on cooking knives, it's like an EDC or a hunting knife. I'm less concerned about that. Uh, but, you know, when somebody's cutting their apple or, or, you know, or cutting up some pork or something like that for their meal, you know, the last thing you want is a chunk of that to fall off and become an extra crunchy tidbit in their food that they weren't, look- they, they weren't looking for that extra iron that way. I mean, it's, it is good for you, right? <laughs> I don't know about in that form though. That, that can do some damage to your esophagus and your probably digestive tract. So. Yeah, probably so. <laughs> um, on the forge scale subject, if yeah. you're not into getting phosphoric acid, then you have vinegar. Um, oh yeah, it takes a little longer, but if you have time for maybe a long overnight soak in that, um, I've had pretty good results with that and. Um, if you know Wyme Cutlery, um, oh, yeah. formerly of California, now in Texas, I believe, he recommends a, a greaseless compound called Satin Glow in the 220 grit format, um, which is available at a supplier, um, True, probably True Grit, he says. Oh, um, yeah. It's like a, uh, like a abrasive putty almost that you put on a wheel right i haven't tried it but that's what the photo he sent me looks like he says he uses a um spiral sewn uh yeah with a yeah harder muslin wheel i guess but yeah his i really am a fan of his he has that forged texture with minimal scale and it's to me it's a pretty clean satin look Um, sure another thing to check out products to buy all over the place Always, always something new. <laughs> All right, before we get into the last bit of the show, I just want to talk about our last sponsor, uh, KnifePrint.com. All right, so KnifePrint, if you go onto their website, you can save 10% on their professional accounts uh, with, the, with the promo code KnifeTalk, just KnifeTalk, no KnifeTalk10. So, uh, but basically the way the service works is that, you know, they, you can put together a design through their website and you can have it. Uh, you can either just have that and use it yourself. Say you already have steel at your shop, but you need a way to come up with, you know, some people struggle with, you know, just drawing in general, drawing a straight line, which is totally fine. Um, this will help you get to a design together so that all you have to do is literally print it out on a piece of paper, cut it out, and you can lay that out on your knife or on the steel. But say it is something that you don't actually have the steel um, 
and you can not only can you come up with the design but you can have them uh hydro cut out a uh a blank and have it shipped to you um so the company is based out of uh, i believe greece so they not only service europe um but they have a partner here in the united states um that helps service the united states as well and so you can get that shipped uh, you know, without obviously the extraneous costs of uh, international shipping, you know, you have that done locally here. Um, and so, and especially if you're thinking about scaling up and you, you know, you've got, you know, just like you had those cleavers, um, not necessarily that everybody was looking for, you know, uh, a, a cleaver made out of virgin steel, but, you know, if you wanted to do a run of cleavers, you know, you come up with the pattern, you send it to the, you, you, you send it to a knife print and, uh, or you do it at knife print and then you, you process it. They could send you maybe like a dozen cleavers, all the exact same. You could even have the holes for the rivets put into the handle, uh, or even like a hole up in the corner for a hook, a hook hole. Uh, you can have all of that done and shipped to you to save you that time because, you know, sometimes also the reality is, you know, people, especially if they're new to knife making, they are lacking in some of the tools um, uh, that would be required for cutting out, even if they did have the steel for cutting it out and all that, that all that jazz. So this helps. It helps just uh, it, it helps make knife making a lot more accessible to a lot more people, which I think is a great thing. Realistically, I th- you know, I hear people, you know, kind of be upset that it seems like everybody and their uncles making knives the reality is not everybody and their uncle are making knives and even if there are that means there's there's more opportunity for innovation stuff to learn from i mean just like thinking about myself personally i six years ago i was washing dishes in a restaurant and now i make really nice chef's knives and i've I've done a lot to help other people because i know that you know, you just never know where that help's going to come from. And so, and, and who's going to have something that's going to possibly be a game changer for you. So anyways, getting back to knife print, uh, you know, I think it's great that they're doing, doing work to help make knife making accessible, accessible to more people. Um, and again, if you're an, if you're, uh, you know, you're a maker that's been in this for a long time and you're looking for a way to scale your production or you want to do a production run, this could be uh, a pretty reasonable way for you to do that. To so once it gets to you, you already have a knife that's cut out holes in place and everything. So from there, it's just heat treat grinding and handling. Um, I think that's actually a pretty good move, and it also allows you, uh, you know, to to pass that savings on to your customers. So knifeprint.com, ten percent. You can save ten percent with the pro on their pro accounts with the promo code. Knife Talk 10. All right. So this last little bit of the show, I wanted to see if you had anybody that... So this is Community Showcase. Uh, yeah, exactly. Really quick. Do you have anybody that you would like to uh, shout out, shed some light on, um, uh, who's inspiring you or that you think is a, a great person who's got some... Who's coming up in the, in the craft world? Yeah, or wherever in the, really in the craft world, knife world, well, knife world. Yeah, usually yeah. the knife world, but it could usually be usually the knife world. Okay, um, someone I've been intrigued by is 
I believe his name is Shihan Pruel, and he owns and runs Shihan Fine Knives out in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Okay. Um, from, well, from what, what kind I understand, of knives does he do? Say it again. What kind of knives does he do? He does primarily chef's knives. Um, he does lots of sanmai and lots of mono cool. steel. Um, he's got, from what I can tell, an incredible shop, and he's an incredibly nice guy. We chatted a good bit maybe a year and a half or two ago. I even forget about what, but it seemed like it wasn't even knife making stuff. It was like True. big life, you know, big life stuff. Um, but he's apprenticed in Japan and that's kind of the aesthetic he takes. You know, he's, I don't know if he's from the world of Murray Carter, but he, it kind of has that aesthetic to, a, to his okay. work. Um, but stand-up guy, I haven't seen or held or used his knives, but from what I can tell, um, just, you know, online, which is as good as any, any of us can really tell. Um, it looks like he sure. does good work. So, nice. Um, but, yeah, he, check, him, check him out. What about you, Mareko? Who's can your... you say his name again? You said Shihan? Sh- uh, Shihan Fine Knives is his Instagram okay. handle, S-H-I-H-A-N. Right. Yeah. Perfect. Cool. cool. All right. I want to give some love to a tie maker whose work I've been admiring for several years now, actually. Uh, his name on Instagram is Bannock Knives. That's B-A-N-N-O-K underscore knives. Um, his work is pretty damn impressive. Um, and he does, yeah, I don't know. He, he does all kinds of stuff from integrals to brute to forge uh, to hamone work. His hamones are awesome. Um, and he makes a lot of hunters, choppers. He makes all, all, um, all kinds of knives, a wide variety for sure. He actually, his top thing he has on here right now is a tiny little micro cleaver. Um, it's, it's pretty cute. It looks like it's a, it doubles as a wallet. Uh, it's about the same size as a folding knife. Bannock knives, B-A-N-N-O-K underscore knives. Um, but anyways, you know, it's, it's, it's impressive to see the, the amount of work or the level of work that people are capable of doing, especially when they have very limited resources. Um, you know, and I guess I'm making an assumption. Um, I've seen some photos of his shop and talked with him a little bit. Um, but nonetheless, he does. Phenom- I think he does absolutely phenomenal work. Um, he really has kind of like that Brute to Forge look down. I think the biggest key to killing it with Brute to Forge is just really clean, accurate forging. And it's just a lot of practice. So anyways, go check him out um, over on Instagram, Bannock Knives. Okay, last, last thing. We're going to play the harp music. <laughs> Almost sounds like a cat actually meowing. Um, but what are, what is something that you're looking forward to just in the next, in the coming week? You know, you've been working your ass off with this raffle, which was phenomenal. Again, I cannot believe, well, I can believe it's just, it still blows my mind though. Just under $55,000 was raised. That's, it's really incredible. Um, you're back into the shop. You got six knives. It sounds like you're working on. What do you got coming up? 
What do you yeah, have after that to? six, um, I do have a big chef's knife that uh, the fella just was gracious enough to give me, you know, a whole bunch of freedom on and a, just a budget. And so I'm getting to explore some new stuff with that. Um, I've not been totally thrilled with with putting Sanmai or put a Damascus core in Sanmai. Just the results mm. I get finish wise, sure. it's going to demand a little bit more uh, time and attention from me. So I'm going to use this as an opportunity to explore that. So that's that's what I'm stoked about. I'm also stoked about the little um, bolster centering tool that uh, I think Salem Straub just posted and just oh, yeah. treated myself to making one of those the other day as I was getting back sure. into the shop. So I guess more integrals to come um, as I just ask myself to lean into the things that challenge me the most. Um, oh, absolutely. So, that's yeah. A good, that's a good mindset to have. How about you? Yeah. Let's see. Uh, well, this next week, knife-wise, uh, I'm looking forward to getting this, this giant knife done in the next couple days. Um, assuming everything goes smooth with getting a nice finish on it, uh, which I'm pretty confident I can do. I just I just got to do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but other than that, um, you know, it... In all of this chaos, uh, one of the the things that has one of the biggest changes has been just trying to get home a little bit earlier um, to try to help um, with getting. Uh, so my my son's been in childcare, and and now obviously childcare is closed, and so you know that puts more on the shoulders of my wife. So I'm trying to get home um, to help relieve some of that uh, extra uh work for her as well as just to kind of squeeze in a little extra time with with my family the dude and i actually went on a nice walk yesterday nice. uh, in the evening as the sun was setting just kind of weaving our way through the neighborhood down the streets and the block and seeing some cool houses and stuff like that uh but just getting more of that time and trying to figure that out and and finding you know i think one of the biggest benefits um which i think a lot of people are starting to find um in in all of this chaos is that you know the the how much they they really do need and really do enjoy getting quality time with people they care about and so um I, and i think that and i'm i'm no uh you know i'm i'm the same you know i've been really seeing and appreciating that myself um and so i look forward to getting more of that time awesome yeah that sounds good well, cool, man. Will, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, it seems like when I do these single track episodes, they go really long. So I hope everybody's enjoyed uh, the conversation and they got they gleaned some knowledge from the episode. And um, and again, man, thank you so much for everything you do. Your work is inspirational. I love seeing every new project you post up. And uh, keep up the great work, my friend. Thanks, man. You too. Um, I'll see you on Instagram. All right, brother. Cool. See ya. Thank you. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.